Welcome to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Podcast. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, coming to you live, as always, from Pasadena, California. And I am joined, unsurprisingly, by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. Um, sadly, Trish is not joining us right away um, because uh, she has, a, has some personal business to take care of this morning, but she assures us she'll be joining us a little later. Isn't that right, Corey? That's what she says. We'll see. I hope she'll be able to make it later. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what's able to happen and we'll... I, I hope so because this, this is a big episode. This is. We're talking about the, the season finale of season three. We are coming to the end uh, of our third season. Kind of amazing to think that we've, been, we've completed almost three seasons here. Though, of course, when I say the season finale, I mean it's the finale of – we, we are planning the episode that will be the finale of this season. It is, of course, not the, the end of our film film season as we still have a bunch of other things to discuss after we finish planning out the episodes but we are planning the final episode today and that is always a big deal so uh and of course we get the rising of the sun we finally after many years get the full outdoor color palette so that will be pretty exciting um uh, okay, so uh, to start with uh, a few uh, announcements, and I've got uh, some really exciting announcements, uh, some of which you have heard me to, uh, say before, but the, the biggest thing, uh, it's been three weeks since we've had film film, and an enormous amount has happened <laughs> in that time that we've been away. Um, uh, most notably, uh, uh, Signum University has officially begun our uh, review process for state certification in the state of New Hampshire. I uh, did a, a, a big announcement session on that last Thursday night, uh, so just uh, just a week ago yesterday. And uh, uh, it, it is uh, an enormously exciting time for us. We are uh, uh, it's it's this moment where uh, Signum University is finally you know transitioning from this startup thing, which is built on a really good and exciting idea, uh, to becoming a fully established. Uh, uh, um, University, a fully established institution of higher education, uh, which will be, you know, legal in all ways and and uh, and and rubbing shoulders with, uh, you know, all the other mainstream universities. Um, the image of myself sitting with the other presidents of the other universities, you know, me sitting there with the president of Southern New Hampshire University and the, and the you know, the, the, the University of New Hampshire and, you know, all these other uh, schools. Um, you know, on the on the Commission for Higher Education in the state of New Hampshire is kind of uh, amazing after sort of where we've come from. Uh, but that's where we'll be. Uh, that's where we'll be in a couple months if uh, if things go all according to plan. The main thing I was sort of uh, 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 asking for on Thursday night, you know, that led up to it was a lot of people were asking what they could do to help. And, of course, the main thing we needed help with was, was financial resources. It's, ex- it's an expensive process and certainly more money than we had sitting around in our pockets. Uh, the total cost of the uh, certification process was almost $24,000. Uh, and... So again, I announced that last Thursday night. Six days later, we had raised 
$27,000. We've received over $27,000 in donations in a week after we made that initial announcement. It's just absolutely the, the, the enthusiasm and generosity that everybody has shown has been absolutely amazing, uh, and I am, I am just enormously uh, grateful and excited to have all of your support and to see your enthusiasm in this. Um, the good news is that if, you, if uh, we reached our goal too quickly and you didn't get a chance to donate and we're hoping to, don't worry. There's still a chance to do so uh, because, of course, after we finish the certification process, we will then be beginning the process of applying for accreditation. And, uh, uh, and the great news is that accreditation is even more expensive than state certification. Um, it's either a little bit more expensive or a lot more expensive, depending on the outcome of some preliminary conversations that I plan to have with the accrediting people. So if I pass my charisma check, it'll only be a little bit more expensive than the certification process. If I don't, it'll be substantially more. Um, in any case, so everything that we raise in our credentialing fund uh, everything that we have raised above uh, what we require for state certification will be going uh, to accreditation, and it's awesome. Actually, we've already raised enough for. There's like a sort of a preliminary readiness screening test that we have to do, uh, you know, just to to to, to do a, a quick review uh, to make sure, so that they can make sure that we, uh, you know, we have all the basic boxes checked, so they know we can really begin uh, the accreditation review. Uh, and we've already raised enough money to cover that, so we already have enough for like the very first step the accrediting process and so that's uh that's really that's really exciting so uh just so just to to make sure everybody knows about this so this is uh uh, i'm going to do some navigating here uh this is the signum university uh homepage of course uh and if you go uh, one thing just to, sh- to see if you want to if you want to if you if this is the first time you're hearing about this and you want to learn more about this I recommend our blog post here on our website um, this will give you all the information that you need to explain what's going on uh, it has a link to the donation page and also of course an embed of the recording of my session on Thursday night if you want to hear me explain the whole process uh, in more detail Um Uh, You can also reach this same page through our Donate tab over here to our Credentialing Fees page. And uh, you can see our our, our updated text here announcing that we completed it uh, and uh, uh, raised everything that we needed and explaining about uh, the sort of the next part of the road here. Uh, And this, of course, is our donation form for the... Uh, for the Signum Credentials Fund there. Uh, So anyway, thank you guys so much again for your generosity. And if you haven't gotten a chance to give and would like to help to support us, uh, work through, continue to work through the certification and accreditation process, uh, then, you know, we really uh, encourage your support. You know, Dave, we were, I was talking actually with the Commissioner of Higher Education in the state of New Hampshire on Tuesday night uh, or Wednesday night. I can't remember which one it was. It was Tuesday. And, um, uh, you know, we were reflecting on the fact that I, 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 both of us think that Signum University might be the first crowdfunded university ever. Huh. I mean, I'm trying to think, has anyone ever crowdfunded a university before? I mean, people raise money, right? I mean, that's a normal thing. But usually raising money means like going out and finding a very wealthy person to give an endowment, right? And which, by the way, I have no bias against very wealthy people who want to endow Signum University. I, I want to make that perfectly clear. Uh, 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 that's, that's perfectly welcome. But 
the, what we have done so They're far. welcome to join the crowd. You're absolutely welcome to join the crowd. Uh, and uh, uh, no criticisms for you know being a little late to the party. It's great. But nevertheless... This has been super exciting, you know, that uh, that yeah. that we're able to with, you know, it's it's the one thing that I've been saying, you know, in our application for certification is that, you know, Signum University started with no resources, right? We started with no endowment. We started with no institutional connection. Um, we have had one thing all along. There is one thing that we've had, and that's people, you know, people and people support. And it's been uh, uh, it's been it's been it's been pretty fun, Marie. You know, it's funny because the the higher education commissioner was teasing me about exactly that. Marie was just saying I won't be naming any buildings after the rich people, and that's exactly uh, 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 Mr. Seidel, the commissioner, was teasing me and saying, "Oh well, yeah, you've got a big problem that you don't you can't name any buildings after people." And so I was, you know, saying I. I you know, we've been trying to think of creative ways around that. You know, my own personal suggestion is that we uh, we name tabs on our website after major donors, right? This would be like, you know, the admissions tab made possible by, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, it'd be like the, the like, uh, you know, the Daisy Smith Memorial admissions tab on our website. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, it is they kind of They can have a podcast episode dedicated to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, and we'll we'll see, we'll see. Um, it is possible, Mary. It is possible that we could name like departments or things like that, or or uh, uh, chairs. Yeah, chair uh, endowed chairs are awesome. I would love endowed chairs. That would be really cool. Um, uh, and frankly, I would like endowed chairs for like staff too you know this is a thing like it's it's traditional to have like faculty you know endowed faculty chairs i think it would be really great just to ha- i mean endowing our people that's what that's what needs endowment right we don't we don't need buildings yeah. you know give us money yeah. to help us pay our people and so have uh, and and so to have uh, you know kind of named uh named seats for that uh you know to put your name to you know like the the you know, the, the, the chair of, you know, for like, you know, for, for, I don't know, for me, like for the president or for some other position, you know, with like for a Dean or for, um, you know, our bursar or whatever, uh, it would be, uh, it would be cool. Well, David, I think that I do agree that that's going to be the, the, you know, like that's, that's the selling point, which I, I I don't know. I kind of think, I kind of think with all the, the press around ballooning higher education costs and stuff, I would think there have to be progressive-minded people out there that would be excited about the idea that they can, they could donate money and have it go toward paying, you know, teaching teaching salaries instead well, of, um, you know, instead, a building with a plaque instead of buildings. Exactly. I mean, that's that's exactly it. The the the, the Signum budget. I mean, as I've been mapping forward, you know, part of this process, I've been mapping forward. You know, six-year budget projections, which are always fun. It's like you know, kind of writing. It's 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 like writing fantasy, right? But anyway, um, uh, budget projections are always an, an an entertaining exercise. But as I'm doing it, you know, what, what I'm seeing, you know, consistently, our budget is projected to be eighty-five to ninety percent salary. Like that's 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 our cost. Our cost are our people, right? Every you know, almost everything you know, everything that isn't invested. In like fee, you know, government fees or bank fees or software licenses, uh, essentially, and you know, library resources. There are a few like small places that we have, uh, but I mean, as we're going to be moving forward, ninety percent of our you know annual budget will be 
for people for salaries. And yeah, I think that's I think that's a pretty exciting selling point, frankly. But yeah, so we'll see. So we'll see. I, I, as I and so as I say to you know for people with resources who might be interested in helping to endow Signum University. Again, don't get me wrong. You are absolutely welcome. And, you know, we will, we will celebrate you very wonderfully. Um, we just don't have buildings to name after you. So there we are. So, um, okay. So anyway, so that's our huge, that's the like big, big, big news going on at Signum. And it's one of the reasons why I've been more scatterbrained than usual, which is one reason why it's also another reason why episodes have been posted less frequently recently, just because we're all preparing for our, uh, our state review, which is a big, big deal. So, uh, but anyway, so I get, but first and foremost thank thank you everybody who has helped to contribute to that and again if you want to, there's there's still lots of there's still lots of room in that boat uh you know as i say our our i can't post i posted a full you know breakdown and chart of our of our certification expenses i'm trying to i, I my goal is total transparency through this entire process however i can't yet be transparent about the accreditation fees because as i say i'm still kind of trying to negotiate exactly what that's going to be so uh but I will, I will certainly have some updates about that before too long. The, uh, the, the, the plan, by the way, uh, of course, needless to say, I cannot guarantee when we would receive accreditation or even indeed if we will receive accreditation. We are applying for accreditation. We will be reviewed and we will hope for the best as a result of that. But I do hope to be beginning that process within the next few months. Um, we Certainly by the fall, we should be. Uh, well invested in that uh, in that process, so um, we'll I will keep everybody updated as we move along. But anyway, so that's the big Signum news that's been going on lately. And again, thanks to everybody who has helped to make that possible. So, uh, so that's announcement number one today. We also have some other awesome things going on. London Mood is coming up quickly. If you are anywhere around in Europe, anywhere within reach of the UK, uh, I encourage you. There's still time to register. Come to London Mood, April 28th. Uh, I am very excited. I've been, you know, looking at the calendar and I'm getting ready to, to fly over to London. I, I haven't been over there in years now and I'm, uh, really excited uh to get back and uh to be able to to meet up with uh with with a bunch of you guys so uh don't forget about that londonmoot.com is where you can go to find the registration links and stuff so londonmoot.com londonmoot.com absolutely yeah. all right good yeah um uh also the Registration for summer courses at Signum University is open. So for those of you who either have uh, been auditing classes in the past, or if you uh, uh, if you are uh, if you've ever been thinking about our program, of course, with our 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 news of our big transitions here and our our are making everything formal and taking the next step forward as an institution. Now's a great time uh, to join our program. If you've been waiting for that, either our certificate program or our master's degree program, uh, definitely encourage you to, uh, uh, to look into that. Uh, you, you know, ne- never been a better time to uh, start your Tolkien study certificate program or your master's degree with a specialty in imaginative literature, or Germanic philology uh, should be, should be great fun. So, uh, again, so the summer courses begin on May seventh, so uh, there's still time to to get even to get in from scratch if you want to apply now. Uh, we received several applications here in this last week, so uh, still time to 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 process those and 
and get started and join us. And of course, Mythmoot Five, Fantastic Frontiers. It is now we are we are now coming into it is it is definitely time to register for Mythmoot. Um, still a couple months on that, June twenty first, but Mythmoot is gonna be great this year. When uh, when uh, when are you going to announce the program? Make decisions about uh, abstracts, etc. That is coming very soon. So if we go, let's see. Let's go back to the Signum homepage, and then you see we're scrolling down here. Here's uh, all the events that are coming up, including, by the way, this is a, a recent one. Uh, Tom Shippey doing uh, doing. We're going to have uh, Tom Shippey doing a little uh, uh, symposium on his new book, "Laughing I Shall Die: Lives and Deaths of the Great Vikings." Uh, so uh, Tom Shippey on Vikings and sort of the Viking mentality is going to be really really cool. But anyway, Mythmoot is what we we're talking about. So here's our Mythmoot page. Um, the uh, the Program should be announced soon. I know they're they're finalizing that now. Um, we've been working on a, a a bunch of things with that. Our events team is working really hard um, uh, to get things set. So they're they're finishing that. That should be coming out very soon. Should be coming out very soon. Good because we're waiting with bated breath. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I've uh, I, I don't I haven't heard an exact date on that, uh, but. Uh, uh, but I haven't heard an update on, on that actually in a little bit as I've been ha- buried in other things while I've yes, been yeah, a uh, little distracted. I've been a little distracted. And also, of course, uh, uh, trusting Mythmoot planning to the very competent hands of the of the events team folks who have been doing such a great job with it the last few years. So uh, anyway, yeah, that will be coming very soon. It'll be coming very soon. Uh, Excellent. Um, yeah, yeah. So – uh, anyway, just definitely want to uh, uh, want to commend that to you guys. And those are our announcements for this time. Sorry, it took a little while for the announcements, but it's a really big announcements going on at Signum this time. You know, the whole life of Signum University. Looking forward to the end of the film film season three process here. Um, we are moving after today into our post-season sessions, our next two or three sessions. We'll focus on the script outline review. Maria, that's adorable uh, that you think we could possibly talk about all the script outlines in two sessions. I am <laughs> touched by your faith. I think that's exceptionally unlikely. <laughs> I would say three to four, or maybe three to five sessions is a little bit more realistic. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, we will 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 be beginning that soon. And of course, the costume sets, props, character design, music content—still lots of opportunity there. For um, we're starting with the script outline because those have been in process for a while, and um, uh, and we want to give people as much uh, you know uh, time to 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 think through the people who are our creative minds who are at work on things like costume sets, props, character. Um, those are uh, uh, those are things we we want to give folks time to do. Um, so um, uh, anyway, uh, we um, uh, yeah. Oh, and the timeline for casting will be announced once the script outlines are reviewed and the character list is finalized. So let me just let me let me let me let me walk you guys through this a little bit because it's I, I wanted to do this. 
Uh, rather than just posting a link, which especially if you're like watching this on YouTube or something, that link isn't going to help you. Um, so just let me make sure everybody knows how to get there. So uh, it, uh, up at the top of the Signum homepage or the MythGuard homepage is a link to the forums. So you just click on the forums, and there's Silm Film right up here at the top, right? So these are all the Silm Film forums, so you can see if you're interested in contributing to any of those other, you know, if you've got ideas about costumes or, or some designs that you've done or music uh, or the sets and props, casting, all that stuff is all is all here, right? And you can go and you can contribute to that. If you want to look at the scripts, so for next time, we're going to be looking at the scripts. So you go to the script uh, one and then season three, and then this is the script outline, the the set of links to the script outlines, which are Google Docs, which uh, you can access. So these are the first four here, uh, and then they carry on there a little bit. There's just through, uh, through the first six here. Certainly as much as we will get to for next time i am certain so um yeah so there you are so just to make sure everybody knows how to get here these these discussion forums are really the heart of the some film project here um the opportunities for you guys all to get together and uh and suggest it i i love the whole uh you know our goal with um with some film from the beginning you know was not just to have a podcast where we are kind of holding forth on what we think this should look like, but for this really to be an active creative collaboration, uh, among us all. And, and certainly, um, you know, I don't have any, uh, uh, any talent in, you know, costume, uh, design or, uh, or, or being able to write, uh, uh, musical themes. So I always really look forward to seeing the work that everybody else has done here. So uh, anyway, so just wanted to show you where to find that stuff so you guys could all know how to do that. Um, Okay, so that's the plan. Um, So let's move forward now. uh, Go ahead. Corey, not not to delay us anymore, did you want to address the elephant in the room, the announcement about Fall of Gondolin? Oh, the Fall of Gondolin, yeah. Um, sure, we can talk about the Fall of Gondolin. Um, Fall of Gondolin should be fun. Uh, I mean, it was more fun than it was to participate in. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, by the way, small Fall of Gondolin story. So I've been listening to the Silmarillion in the car uh, with my kids uh, while I'm driving them to school lately and we're we're up to we're up to of tour in the fall of gondolin now and i was so proud like when we got to we just this morning got to the moment where turgan decides not to follow uh Olmo's directive to to leave gondolin and my son's face palmed when he's <laughs> when turgan decides not to do it and i'm like yes i was so proud <laughs> you know that, that as soon as as soon as he as, as soon as he rejects the council of the ward of waters my sons are like oh man that's gonna turn out well they said um <laughs> anyway uh so it's uh, it's uh, it's gonna you're, be fun you're raising so. them right yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but as for the the book to be published, The Fall of Gondolin, my understanding here is that The Fall of Gondolin is going to be a lot like the Baron and Luthien volume. Um, that is to say, containing, I believe, uh, as far as I understand, no new material, that is, only material that's already been published in the history of Middle-earth, the main function of the volume, again, like Baron and Luthien, and to an extent, uh, though to a lesser extent, than the Children of Hurin 
back in 2007 or something. That was ages ago now. Um, but anyway, the, the the point of those is to bring it all together into one place, right? So if you want to, if you want to read the full story of the fall of Gondolin, to read all the different, you know, the different versions of it that Tolkien wrote over time, you don't have to go hunting through the history of Middle Earth for everything. It just presents the whole thing with pretty illustrations by Alan Lee. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure it will be a gorgeous book. The, uh, those books have all been gorgeous and worth having for that alone. Um, I am. So, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm excited about it in one sense, but my excitement is kind of tempered by the, like my, I kind of got my hopes up a little bit with the Baron and Luthien book that I have to admit was a little disappointed. That is what I was disappointed by was that there was no new material at all. And, and, and the thing is, is that based on what Christopher says in his commentaries, especially in the lost road, uh, volume five of the history of middle earth, he suggested that there was more material out there that like Tolkien had written stuff and then condensed it down and written stuff and then condensed it down. But the longer thing that he wrote didn't, you know, uh, Christopher didn't include it in The Lost Road. So, you know, but I get it. Like, I get why he didn't do that. You know, he didn't want to make this the, like, ultimate, you know, hodgepodge of everything Tolkien ever wrote about Baron and Luthien. He wanted to present the story, um, you know, more or less as it had been uh, as it had been presented. But again, just to put it all in one place for, uh, you know, for readers who, you know, so he was not catering to the folks who had already read carefully through the history of Middle Earth. He was catering to the folks who didn't know it at all, who, for whatever reason, didn't read the history of Middle Earth series. And so um, I get that, and I think that that's a really great idea. I mean, I think it's really cool to have people. Uh, you know, I, I know that the, that a lot of people who got Baron and Luthien were reading the Book of Lost Tales version of the Tale of Tenuvio for the first time, uh, and that's great. I mean, awesome, I, wonderful that people you know get the chance to be presented with Tavildo the cat and everybody else, um, you know, uh, where they might not have seen it and might never have found it, and so. With the Fall of Gondolin, it's going to be the same. Of course, the centerpiece has got to be the Book of Lost Tales version. The version of the Fall of Gondolin in Book of Lost Tales Volume 2 is not only the longest version of the Fall of Gondolin he ever wrote, um, and one of the very first things, really the first Middle-earth thing he ever wrote, but it's also the only one he ever finished, ever. Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's... he wrote a kind of a summary, which he sort of finished later on, which which a lot of the uh, the the t- you know in the in the in the nineteen thirty uh, Quinta, but uh, or thirty three Quinta, but it's how um yeah how 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 would you say this would align to the version in Unfinished Tales? Oh, that'll be included too, but it won't align to that. See, so the version in Unfinished Tales is the version that Tolkien sat down and started writing later, like in 1951, right after he'd end, written The Lord yeah. of the Rings, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it's much, much longer. I mean, had he finished that, that would have been novel length by itself, it seems pretty clearly. I mean, it's already a pretty big chunk of Unfinished Tales, and it's only, like, it, do- it only gets to the point where Tour, does- Tour doesn't even get to Gondolin. Right. I mean, he just gets right. to the gates yeah. and the gates open and he's looking out over the valley and sees Gondolin in the distance. And that's it. So, I mean, that would have been hundreds of pages long had he finished it, but he never did. Um, if I had even the like the remotest, inc- you know, if there were any possibility that Christopher had stumbled upon like the like secret finished version <laughs> of that version of the story like man this would be the most excited book i would be waiting i'd be lining up in the in the street on uh, on release that's day. what i'm wondering like what is the what are the chances of that uh i think 
zero. About zero. Yeah, about zero. They really are. Because I, I, I'm pretty sure uh, that um, he just never wrote it. That would be it. amazing. Yeah. yeah, it really would. It really would. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I... I it's been a while now that that has been at the very top of my list of things I really wish Tolkien of all of the things that Tolkien left unfinished. That's the number one I wish that he had finished. Uh, is the uh, you know the 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 nineteen fifty one tour story, um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, so I'm I, I, I the fall of Gondolin is going to be great, but uh, but again, if you know the story, I mean, like if you especially like if you've been going through the history of Middle Earth, uh, you know, with me in the Mythgard Academy series, we've been doing on this. Um, if, if if you've been following along with the Mythgard Academy series, you've pretty much you will have read everything that is going to be in that book already. Essentially, I mean, it's going to be the bit from the Book of Lost Tales, Volume Two. It's going to be the stuff from the Shaping of Middle Earth and the Lost Road. It's going to be um, the bit from Unfinished Tales, and that's going to be pretty much it. A little bit of commentary, probably, but um, but there won't be any other material. So I, it's great, I, you know, wonderful to have it. I, it. It's it's worth it as packaging, you know. And I, that sounds I don't know maybe that sounds insulting, but um, because again I know that not everybody reads the history of Middle Earth series, right? So. I think it's great to have a mainstream publication to, to really spotlight, you know, the Baron and Luthien story and to spotlight the fall of Gondolin. Um, uh, very cool. The Children of Huron, of course, was a little bit of a bigger project in the sense that um, although all of that material had been published at one time or other, it had never anywhere been put all in one into one continuous story. Um, when he published pretty much all the material in the Children of Hurin was derived from the Unfinished Tales bit. But in the Unfinished Tales bit, he didn't do that. You know, he just, if you remember in Unfinished Tales, there are long sections of that where he's like, and from here on, it's pretty much follows the published Silmarillion until we get to this other set. And then here's a new chunk of text. So there was nowhere on earth where you could just sort of read through the entirety of the uninterrupted Turin story. Um, you know, the longest version of the Turin story. And so the Children of Hurin was in that sense presenting us with something, um, with something new, something that we hadn't seen. It wasn't no bit of text. I think was brand new then, but at least it, it was it was presented in a totally new way. And for the first time, you could just read it uninterruptedly all the way through. And I thought that was really great. Um, uh, so it, this this should probably won't even be quite that. But I mean, hey, anytime there is a new Tolkien publication. It is still exciting, and and uh, I'm glad they're doing it. So, thank you for reminding me to say something about that, Dave. I'd almost forgotten. Uh, I think there would have been a riot if you hadn't addressed it. Yeah, true, true. Okay. All right. Well, so let's, now to the business. Now at hand. to the business at hand. Let us talk about this episode. So let's look at some of these elements. I have to admit, I'm. I'm a little concerned about where we're going to... I mean, I've been expressing this concern for weeks that... Uh, uh, well, not concern exactly. I don't know what it is, but um, uh, reflection that we are coming... You know, the, about how the ending of the, of season three is does not have the kind of climactic ending that uh, that the rest of, uh, of, the, of the season... The, the other two seasons have had. Um, you know, there is no cataclysmic event... Uh, which is uh, which is concluding this uh, the season, um, so the sort of mapping out the momentum um, uh, 
mapping out the momentum of this episode, I think is going to be really important to kind of make this the cha- the biggest challenge I think of episode 13 here is making this feel like the end of a season, you know, making this feel like a, uh, uh, a, a, uh, season finale um and not just and now we're going to stop <laughs> talking about this which i think there's a real there's a real chance that it could feel that way if we're not careful um so i uh, yeah see mariel it's tough cuz on the one hand i um it's not that i don't think the rising of the sun is i mean that is a in a, it's not a cataclysmic event, right? But it is a, an epic-defining event. I mean, the rising of the sun is a really big deal. But it's a it's it's kind of a gentle big deal, right? Compared to the the darkening of Valinor, right? I, on the one hand, I love the 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 correspondence of that, right? You know how we end season two with the darkening of Valinor, and we end season three with the rising of the sun. The the kind of symmetry of that is 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 beautiful. Uh, again, like on paper, I think it's great. Um, when I actually think about what it would look like on screen and how we shape this episode, um, it's, uh, it's a little bit, it's a little bit less clear to me. Um, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about as we go through. Um, let me just say at the very beginning, before we start talking about the individual elements, cause it's going to come up as we go through some of these elements, my real question is, where do we end? Um, if, as, as so, Mariel, just thinking about what you were just saying, right? Um, if the rising of the sun is truly the culmination, right? If that is the exciting moment that we're building to at the very end of this, you know, of, of this episode, how do we have that? Do we have it at the end, right? Do we want the sun to be rising in the last you know, five, 10 minutes of the episode to have the, 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 the closing sequence of this episode, the closing sequence of season three, be the rising of the sun and the various reactions to the rising of the sun. Um, or do we have it happen earlier on in the episode? And if so, then what happens? So again, we'll, 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 we'll see, uh, as we're talking about the different elements, um, what I mean by that, um, but I, I think it's 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 going to be a factor with a bunch of these different parts. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what we said about this a few weeks ago. About sort of, we, we had some ideas about maybe showing the rising of the sun with the with the Morgoth's creatures and in full flight and yes. things like that. Yes, with reaction shots and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll come to let's 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 talk about the different elements here. The first thing we know. Uh, is the captivity of Mithros, right? Because we had Mithros be taken captive by Sauron and the trolls uh, without the assistance of Balrogs uh, last time. Uh, so, okay, so we have... Um, so he's he's been he he's been captured. Uh, I certainly agree. We don't need to torture him on screen, and I don't think an interrogation scene is what we... There's, there's no information that we need to convey to the audience there, right? Um, uh, we, you know, the, so could the concept questioning by Morgoth will reveal that the Noldor rebelled against the Valar, right? He doesn't know what they're doing here, um, whether they've been sent or the, the, are they the advanced force of the Valar coming to trample on him? That has to be his number one fear, you know, his number one concern. Um, so he will figure out 
either because he will be told directly by Mithros or because he will conclude, based on what Mithros tells him, that the Noldor have come on their own, that they are not they are not supported. In fact, not only are they not the vanguard of the force of the West, uh, but they have come in, in uh, defiance of the Valar, which I have to think that Morgoth is going to find exceptionally encouraging. Um, so I, I, I think that Morgoth has got to be fairly pleased about what he learns uh, from Mithros. Now, there's a great question that Marie asks here, the death of Theonor, will that remain unknown? Um, I, I don't know. I don't feel really strongly about this. Um, he's got to, on the one hand, he's got to learn about it sooner or later, right? Um, and if he's got to learn about it, why not sooner, right? Um, if he doesn't find out about it until season four, for instance, by that point, time, I mean, a lot of water will have gone under our bridge by then, right? And it seems like if if season three really is the, I mean, Feanor is kind of the dominant figure in season three here, um, I would think that at least you know, Morgoth's acknowledgement of or his learning of his, of, of the death of Feanor might be uh, a good thing actually to happen here so that we can kind of close the book on Feanor here. And then when we start season four, we're just completely in a post Feanor world and there's no, you know, not, I mean, people will allude to him obviously, and the oath is going to stick around, but, um, but to have him not be, I, I think having, you know, even a brief subplot in which, you know, Morgoth still has not yet learned that Feanor is dead. That would seem to be a distraction at the beginning of season four, I think. So I think we might as well have him discover that here. Um, uh, I like the idea of closing the book on Feanor at this point. Yeah. I think that's a good way to go. I think so. Mariel is a great suggestion that uh, um, we could have uh, Morgoth's uh, horror at the rising of the sun, right? His horror and terror when the sun rises, um, would be well, um, balanced, but, or would come in very appropriately, uh, if we have him very, you know, gloating, right? He's gloating about the fact that the Valar aren't coming. He can be telling himself and boasting to his servants that, uh, that even the Valar don't dare now to come against him. And, uh, and then Feanor is dead and he'll be boasting and, and, uh, and uh, uh, mocking Feanor and his brief rebellion and his, uh, uh, his, his pitiful attempt at vengeance um, and how, how far away he, you know, how close he didn't get uh, to recovering the Silmarils or anything, and so then it, for him to be caught in the midst of his triumph and gloating by the rising of the sun, and and uh, that that seems to that seems to work really well, actually. So, um, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, Phil suggests that Morgoth could be taunting Mithros, saying that uh, you know that even his dad won't be able to save him or something like that, and then he Morgoth can just kind of read in Mithros's reaction. Uh, the truth of Feanor's death. Um, uh, yeah, that, 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 I think that something like that would seems to me like that would work really well. Yeah, I like that. That would be very dramatic. Yeah, that would be cool. Okay. So, afterwards, okay, so we've got the, the, so Morgoth is going to, of course, send the second embassy uh, to the, the, the rest of the sons of Feanor. Uh, and I would think during that embassy, they would reveal that they know that Feanor is dead, 
right? Because remember, Sauron, when he came and was treating with Mithros, didn't know yet. Um, but anyway, okay, right. So, uh, the and and the terms, of course, if you don't remember this passage in the text, uh, they they send this saying, "We'll release Mithros." If you go back into the west or like retreat down into the south of Middle Earth, far away, basically leave, you know, get out, um, give up your war against me and go far, far away. I don't care what direction it is you go as long as it's far away. Um, so uh, anyway, <clears throat> so that's um, that's the, the 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 second embassy. They reject it. The the rest of this, the other six sons of Fanor, excuse me, five, we're down to five, six in the book, five for us. Uh, the five remaining sons of Fanor reject uh, the terms because they, they know that Morgoth isn't going to, is going to keep faith, even if they, you know, no matter what they do. And anyway, they can't uh, because of the, because of the oath. Um, so how do we want to do this second embassy? I don't, and I don't think we need to make a huge fanfare of it. I mean, like we made a really big deal of the proposal of the meeting and then the meeting. And, you know, I don't think we need to go through that same sequence. I think we need to have a herald come to the camp perhaps, um, you know, so ha- have somebody show up at the gates of their, of their encampment, um, which they've fortified now and, uh, and just, you know, sort of deliver this kind of mouth of Sauron esque, right. Um, uh, to say that we have this prisoner, in fact, exactly mouth of Sauron esque, right? Yeah, in fact, exactly. Let's have him show tokens, right? Uh, tokens of 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 the you know, so, so have them show something uh, to prove that it's really Mithros. Uh, that, you know that they do in fact have Mithros, and and that's. Uh, yeah, Marie, I was thinking of a, I was thinking of a lock of his hair too, which is of course very distinctive. Uh, Mothers' hair being very distinctive, but um, uh, but yeah, something he was bidden to show to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think I think that Oakwig, yeah, Oakwig says so. Sauron should be the mouth of Sauron here. I like it. I like it. Um, uh, that would be. Uh, that would be hilarious, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. We could do a direct parallel, Tony. Tony is suggesting, like, the mouth of Sauron could be a like a turned dark elf, like the mouth of Sauron was a turned mortal. We could do it that way. I kind of like the idea of having, like, the, 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 ma- the mouth of Sauron later on be uh, uh, sort of recapitulating the role that Sauron himself played in that earlier... Um, uh, in in that earlier scene, that seem that to me really seems to fit the overall pattern that we see so often in Tolkien. You know, what I've what I've uh, 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 you know, and I've I've talked about this before. How it's it's like a figurative, um, you know, it's it's like, a, um, yeah, it's the the way that you get that echo right where it's 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 lesser as we move forward. You know, the the echoes get smaller uh, as we. Uh, as we move forward. Um, anyway, so yeah, having it be Sauron therefore would, would, would kind of make sense and be cool. I think. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The reduction in scale. Uh, so let's, so let's say it's, so say Sauron comes to the gates and offers the terms, uh, and they reject the terms. Uh, you know, I get same thing, right? He shows the tokens, he offers the unreasonable terms and they reject utterly the unreasonable terms. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, that's great. I had not even thought of that parallel until just now, uh, and I love it. I think that that's, that's absolutely fantastic. Okay, so so yeah, so so we can do that in one shot. Again, we don't have to set up a whole parley and everything. We just have uh, have him come as a herald and, uh, and, and, and be rejected. And now I agree, uh, uh, Marielle, that, that what we should be emphasizing is not is not uh, callous abandonment, right? It's not like they, they don't care about Mithros, even though some of them are kind of scheming against him, but rather it should be their skepticism, right? Their sort of pessimism. Um, assuming like Mithros is lost. They could, even, they could either assume that he's dead or that he, he Morgoth's just going to kill him anyway. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, yeah, that's... Oh, Greg, you are right. We should actually have Sauron. Wouldn't it be cool if Sauron actually said, like, I am the mouth of Morgoth, right? Come on. That would be, that would be, that would be fun. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So no, the, 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 the other sons of Fanor would be assuming that Morgoth isn't going to keep his word. And yeah, there's every reason to think they're completely right about that. Um, ooh, yeah, Nick, you're right. Nick uh, points out that Sauron should blame the capture on Mithros, saying that he violated the terms of their parley, you know, that uh, uh, that that they have taken captive this, like, faithless, this base and faithless uh, traitor who, um, you know, who sought, you know, in this, uh, in this uh, uh, cowardly and blackguardly fashion to, uh, uh, to ambush their, uh, their, you know, their, uh, their emissaries. Um, so yeah, yeah, that would, that would be, uh, that would be cool. Um, oh, David, and absolutely, he would call him Melkor the Great. He would not call himself the mouth of Morgoth. He'd call himself the mouth of Melkor, of course. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, Tony was just saying the same thing, too. That's that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Um, yeah, yeah, very good. Um, okay. Uh, good. So I think that's that's all fairly, fairly straightforward. After they reject these terms, Mytheris then gets stapled to the cliff face, Um uh, and uh, so yeah, he's gonna he's gonna have a view of the arrival of Fingolfin later on, but we'll get to that in a minute um, or a few minutes. Um, and yes, we certainly do need to see Mithros hanging there in the sunlight. I am thinking that you know the end of the season needs to be like a a sort of you know, pastiche of different images that we're getting juxtaposed against each other. And certainly, uh, Mithros hanging in misery in the sunlight, right? As the sun rises is certainly gotta be one of them. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, good. Um, Okay, uh, Mariel in particular wants to see the scene in which he actually gets stapled to the cliff. Um, okay. That's pretty bloodthirsty. It is. It is. But I, I, I like that. I mean, I, I generally agree that we, I don't think we need just extraneous torture scenes. You know, I, I don't think we need to just go out of our way uh, to show him on the rack or something like that. Um, but emphasizing both the cruelty of Morgoth and also the the suffering of Mithros seems to be a good thing, I think. Um, we want to, we want to, we want to, um, 
Yes, we definitely want to show that. I do wonder, how, how do the mechanics of the cliff stapling actually work? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, should do we have him actually... Yeah. They have like a like a they have like a little uh, like a harness like a scaffold right yeah yeah is, is, yeah does uh, is is Morgoth in one of those like cherry picker buckets you know that comes up from the yeah yeah um, that's a really good question um, yeah this is another of those moments the, the, the stunts people would uh, would and set and set piece people would love it if we say like oh we'd like to film this scene yes. Um, yeah. And in fact, go, you have to construct the whole scene, figure out how to do it, and then we're going to show five seconds. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, so, okay. Um, this is actually one of those scenes which it, it comes across really powerfully in the prose. But yeah, when you actually think about seeing people, sta- like, what's Morgoth standing on? when he is, you know, when they're attaching Morgoth to the cliff, how does that, how does that work? Um, uh, see, I don't think it can be lowered from above. He can't be just chained because it's not the same thing, right? If he, if he's on a chain, um, you know, if his, his wrist is chained and the chain is hanging like from a staple so that Mithros is kind of swinging free, um, that would be, that would certainly be painful enough to him, but it leaves him, there's too, it's too, there's too much, it'd be easy, too easy for him to escape. There's a reason his wrist is stapled directly to the cliff instead of being attached on a chain. If he's free like that, he can, he can relieve his suffering, right? I mean, if you're, if you're just hanging from your chain on a wrist, he could pull himself up and, you know, prop his feet against the cliff and, you know, haul on the cliff with his left, with his left arm. And, you know, in other words, there's lots of ways in which he could, uh, he could relieve the, 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 you don't just get the unrelieved suffering of hanging there, um, by your wrist. So chaining someone like that. And then of course there's, there's more chance of him to actually try to get free of the chain and it would seem easier for, for Fingen to be able to get through of the, of the, of the, of the chain. So I I don't think he, I don't think he can possibly be on a chain. It's too easy. It's, it's, it's too easy. I think that he has to, um, I think he's got to be, he's got to be stapled. Uh, and I think that we can, uh, especially if we make the, if we make the band that attaches him to the, wall thick like you know like not just like one bar around his wrist but a but a thick thing like a, like the the size of a bracer on his forearm then he, he won't be able to move right um so i think that that's important um uh, yeah yeah um yeah okay um Let's see. Okay. I think having there Nick having there be a ledge right above him makes I think the most sense. That seems to me to 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 work. He wouldn't be able to reach it. That way, Morgoth can stand in a certain, with a certain degree of dignity, right, right above him. 
he would be able to be attached that way, right? He could, we could have orc slaves or, 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 or whoever is doing the actual nail. Presumably Morgoth is not himself wielding the hammer or whatever the tool is that attaches him to the cliff himself, right? Um, staple gun. The staple gun, exactly, yes. Yes, the evil staple gun. Um, so... And actually, if the ledge is, if the ledge, like, uh, if the ledge is, like, properly formed, like if it juts out far enough, it actually forms a barrier making it harder for uh, Mithros to escape. To escape, exactly. So so they'd have to take him to this ledge with a cliff, yeah, with a cliff face below it, possibly, as you say, like a little bit undercut from the ledge, right? Then all they'd have to do is that one of the orcs would have to, like, toss him off holding his hand, right? So he's, his, um, uh, his his hand would be held. He'd be he'd be he'd be hanging from his hand by one orc, and then the other orc would just have to drive the the band in around his wrist as it's there. Cause his hand, like his hand, could be like as as it's hanging. His hand could only be like a foot below the edge of the. I mean, he wouldn't be able to do anything. He wouldn't be able to reach it. Um, or I mean, it could be a little bit further down than that. But um, uh, but yeah, that that. Um, that seems to me like that would like that would work. Um, and uh, Tony, yeah, I, I love that. Tony is suggesting that uh, we should use this as a foreshadowing of what will happen to Hurin, um, that this could actually even be the same place where Hurin and Morgoth have this conversation later on. Yeah, I like the idea that that ledge should be big enough that Morgoth comes with a chair next time and puts Hurin on that ledge, uh, uh, on that same ledge. I kind of like that. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, cool. Um, and yeah, you know, Nick, if we want to, if we want to, you know, toss an orc off or something, we can totally, we can totally do that. You know, that's no problem (laughs) to sort of show how, how high up the cliff is and everything. You know, we can, we can certainly, uh, we can certainly have one of the orcs do. I'm almost, um, um, ooh, Karita is suggesting that the uh, uh, that Morgoth um, sort of melts the rock face and 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 just binds his his arm to uh, to the rock itself. Um, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Uh, I kind of like that. Um, I'm tempted. I'm tempted to do a cliffhanger thing, right? Like, wouldn't it be kind of funny if? he was going to get tossed over and he, he caught himself and he's hanging from the ledge in like a classic Hollywood cliffhanger moment. Right. He's hanging by one. And then he's just grab He's just stapled to the ledge. There's like, okay, there you, I'm just going to leave you right there. Um, yeah. 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 So, you, so you mean they don't, they don't. Oops. Sorry. I lost you there, Dave. That out to staple him to the. Oh, Sorry, you're breaking up a bit. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't hear the last bit. Uh, I was gonna. I said. Uh, so, so they don't set out to stable him the cliff. They try to throw him over the they cliff. They try to throw him over, himself. and he catches. Yeah, and he like throws off one of the orcs and catches himself. And Morgoth's like, "Okay, fine, we'll just do this." Um, yeah, no, we can't really do that because Morgoth would. Nah. The plan would have to be to have him be tortured and not just executed. So, right. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't work. Also, I don't think um, we want to turn this into an action scene. What? Oh, come on now. We don't want to add unnecessary action scenes? 
I thought this was supposed to be a, you know, oh, okay. A, a blockbuster a screen adaptation. Yeah, good, Isn't that what yeah, you good point. Good point. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh well. Um, <laughs> anyway, okay. So, so they go up there, and, and Mithros might be under the impression that he's going to get thrown off the cliff, right? Um, so you know, we could sort of have him. We could sort of have him struggling, um, but yeah. I don't know if I, I mean the the idea of the Iron Band is kind of uh, I mean symbolically I like that you know with uh, the sort of the connection to Ang Band and and the you know, it'd be kind of fun if it were sort of similar to the Iron Crown like if 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 if, they, if it looked kind of similar I'm not crown shaped you know but like the there was this when you go back and forth between Mithros and his iron band and, and, and Morgoth wearing his iron crown, right. To be able to sort of see the, the similarities between those two, I think is, um, would be, would be kind of cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, Yeah, and I agree, uh, Nick, he does have to be far enough down that he can't pull himself up and grab the ledge with his left hand. Um, yes, though even there, what's he going to do? You know, I mean, he can't go anywhere. Um, and he can, he could only reach the ledge by kind of contorting his right arm and then grabbing, what, up like this, and then what? <laughs> like, now, now what do you do? Uh, so I'm not even sure that... Uh, uh, that that's gonna that's gonna matter too much, but yeah, I think the ledge above his head is the perfect solution uh, because it, it enables it gives Morgoth a fir- you know and then we don't have to have Morgoth uh, you know repelling down the cliff face or hovering in midair implausibly or building a scaffold of some kind or anything kind of uh, uh, disappointing like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Marielle, you are on fire today. You are completely right. We need a reason for Kurofin to forge uh, uh, Angrist, the, the knife that cuts through iron. Except he can't forge it in advance, of course, because then Fingen could have... Well, of course, but Fingen wouldn't have it. But yeah, maybe uh, maybe that's what inspires um, the forging of Angrist, is the story afterwards. So yeah, having the, having the iron there... Um, uh, that way we can have Kurofin allude to the binding of Mithros's wrist when he produces the knife, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was uh, Marie's suggestion a long time ago? Cool, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, of course, Telkar makes the knife, right? But that's why Kurofin carries it. Yeah, no, that's good. I like it. I like it. Um, okay, good. So... Excellent. I feel I feel good about this. And we need a taunting speech, right? We need a taunting speech from Morgoth. Uh, and and here again is where I want to come back to the point that Tony was making, which I think is excellent. Um, we want to we want to establish that this should look and sound familiar, right? This should look and sound familiar when uh, Hurin is up there again, right? When uh, when Morgoth is up, uh, possibly on this very same ledge with Hurin later on, uh, and Morgoth is boasting, the, the sort of the boast and the taunting should be sort of similar. Now, not exactly the same, because I want Hurin's defiance of Morgoth to be 
a remarkable thing, right? I don't want Mithros to be defying Morgoth in the same way or to the same extent. Mithros is awesome, but but Hurin, the, the defiance of Hurin the Steadfast has to be a thing which genuinely takes uh, uh, takes Melkor aback, right? Um, uh, so I don't want to I don't want to echo it too much in the in the dialogue there, um, but um, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely think that you know Morgoth's attitude should be sort of similar. Um, yeah, because Mario he's going to be giving Mithros a view, right? Uh, hang there and watch as I destroy the rest of your kin should be more or less the message, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool, cool. Um, I mean, Tony's suggesting that maybe he can uh, sort of mock Mithros or sort of remind Mithros of the the way in which he manipulated the Noldor into rebelling in the first place, right? So that this is the, uh, you know, I can imagine him saying something like, you know, behold the, you know, the fulfillment of all of my designs for the destruction of your kin, uh, you know, that were conceived back in Valinor and, and, you know, when I began uh, deluding you completely, you know, you morons over there. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly, Mario. I don't think they have a conversation. I think he's. He, I, I think this is a monologue, almost entirely a monologue. Um, I would be okay with having Mithros be barely conscious, essentially, during this uh, whole thing. So, yeah, yeah. I think that that. I think that that all works really, really well. Okay, good, excellent. Well, let's move on to the next element then. Fanorian politics. Now here. I get, uh, uh, I start having trouble. Okay. First part is fine. Maglor, a weak leader, is ostensibly in charge. Yeah, this is tough because, uh, uh, Maglor can be, is next in line, um, and certainly is the one that Mithros would have trusted most. Uh, but of course, Kurufin is indeed, uh, calling the shots. Uh, Amros hates everyone is in his, and in his despair at the loss of Mithros. Hey, I have an idea. What if Amros dies here? What do you say? Should we just kill off Amros? I don't know. Uh, and this might be a good opportunity. <laughs> we're really, we're really working at this, aren't you? <laughs> I just, I just don't want to let an episode go by without suggesting the death of Amros. But um, no, it's fine. No, we, of course, Amros will survive. But I love that Amros hates everyone. Is is uh, is a good. See, I wanted to put him out of his misery, people, but you insisted, so that's fine. Amros hates everybody, um, and and you know, I'm just teasing everybody. Right. I mean, I'm, I, it's just this is, this is a running joke now, people. I want to make sure you're taking this in the right spirit. Um, okay, so I agree. We have this complicated situation where Kurofin is basically in charge, but he's not uh, taking command. At least not yet. Um, uh, he re- he's the one who decides to refuse Morgoth's terms. Yes, because they're so obviously false. He may suspect that Mithros is already dead. I, I gotta assume that they're gonna assume that he's already dead. Right? They believe the tokens that he's taken, but they assume that he's dead. Um, also, the oath prevents them meeting t- the terms. Yeah, there's there's really no way that they can. Um, and maybe, I'm thinking maybe Maglor points that out. That is, the other, you know, Kurufin and, and you know, Caranthir and Caligorm can all be saying, um, 
you know, we will never do that. And Kurafin saying, you know, we will never leave. We will never give up. And Kurafin saying, you know, there's no point in doing it anyway because, you know, he's almost certainly lying and Mithras is probably already dead. And Maglor, I think, could be the one to add. And even if we did want to, we can't. You know, we're we are we are we are trapped in this, whether we want it or not. That that is the the sense in which the sense of the oath of Feanor, which they have sworn as a you know, a noose into which they have placed their own heads, uh, and a you know, a, 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 you know, a restraint to their future deeds. That's got to be something that is already. It's not yet wearing heavily on Maglor, but he's he's he is conscious of it, um, and he has this foreboding of how this oath is going to be dominating the rest of their lives. Um, whereas again, I think that the, the, the you know, uh, Kurufin and Karanthir and Kelagorm are not going to be bothered by that. They're still kind of gung ho. Uh, and Emros, of course, is, um, um, is, is certainly in agreement about how uh, he, in fact, could say some, uh, very negative things about how, you know, they're all trapped and screwed. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I gotta think Magor's position here is pretty bad. I mean, pretty unhappy. Um, you know, with the prospect of Mytheris' death in particular. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Fingolfin's arrival. Why is this tricky? Okay, this is tricky because Fingolfin does not arrive in Mithrim according to the text. Like as he arrives in Mithrim, the sun rises. Mm-hmm. So Fingolfin and his host arrive. The sons of Feanor and their smaller host says, oh, shoot, Fingolfin is still alive, and they're here, and they're probably a little ticked off about the whole burning of the ships thing. Let's uh, prudently move to the other side of the lake so that we, you know, give them some space, right? Um, That all happens, that all happens after the rising of the sun. So where do we have that happen in this episode? Is that what we end with? tension around Lake Mithrim? That seems to me about the least exciting ending of this episode that I can think of. You know, Fingolfin triumphantly arrives in Middle-earth. Great scene. The sun rising. Great scene. Fingolfin pounding on the doors of Angband. Awesome. The sun shining on Mithros hanging on the cliff face. Great, great material. Um... The moving of a camp to a different place and the vague, unverbalized tensions between two armies. Not a really climactic that, moment. That's sounds like compelling TV. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a good setup for future action, right? But not... I, I, I just... I can't see a way to make that... Um, to make that exciting. To make that element of it exciting. Just like that to end with you know, political tension and then political tension breaks out. Like that's, I just, I can't, I can't get behind that as the culmination, you know, uh, of the whole season, essentially. I think 
that the especially since we're not gonna we're not gonna do anything with it yet, right? The fact that that people be able to figure out on their own, right? That now that the the people of Fingolfin are there and the people of Feanor are there and the, you know, we know how ticked off many of the people of Feanor are, especially Angrod and maybe Turgon, uh, uh, are about this, that there's likely to be trouble, right? The idea that, right. uh, that there's tension in the air and that there's stuff that's going to need to be worked out or else this could get ugly. They're not going to need to have two armies actually sitting there in different camps kind of glowering at each other across the lake, right, uh, in order for us to, to establish that fact. The mere moving of camps, I think, not an exciting element for this, uh, for this scene. Therefore, um, what I would suggest is that we save that. We say, I, don't, I, I think it would be best if the, if the Feanorians and the, and the people of Fingolfin don't interact at all. Maybe the Feanorians don't even know that Fingolfin is back. I don't care if they don't know. Maybe they hear about it. Maybe they hear a rumor. I don't know. But I don't particularly care. Um, we, we know, right, and our viewers will know that they're back and that potential trouble is, is brewing. And if that is something that makes them interested to see how this gets resolved and what happens in season four, great. But I don't think that's, this is the culminating spot that we're trying to build everyone to, right? Um, so we'll come back, obviously we'll, we'll be considering Fingolfin and Fingolfin's movements and how those work in the timing of this scene. I, I don't think we get the moving of the camps. I think the moving of the camp happens in episode one of season four. Yeah, um, I think we, I think we just, that'll work better at the beginning of a season as a setup for future drama. Yeah, exactly. It's a setup for future drama. It's not, uh, it is, it is. If you're, if yeah. you're looking for ways to make this, this less anti, or even more anticlimactic, then definitely finish. <laughs> right. Finish with a relocation of camps and a, and, and a wordless standoff. That's not. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It doesn't scream drama to me. Again, we're, uh, we're going to get back to, um, we're going to get back to, uh, uh, to, to this. And, and, you know, Karita, I agree with you. Karita makes a great point. And, you know, Karita, I'd never made that connection before, but you're completely right. Oh my goodness. How did I never make that connection? Karita is saying that the, the meeting between the Feanorians, uh, and the followers of Fingolfin is like the, is like the meeting in Genesis between Jacob and Esau afterwards, right? When, when Jacob is returning, uh, and is worried about how like, you know, Esau is going to come and, and, uh, and it's the moment where Jacob is like, I'm going to put my least favorite wife, wife and sons in the front, right? Just in case he sets upon us. Uh, but anyway, it absolutely does have the flavor of that, of that meeting. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's, and of course, because it's, I, I, you know, Karina, as you say that, I'm shocked that I've never thought of that before, because of course I've often thought about how, you know, the kin slaying is, is, you know, we get all this, like the, the, the Aule and Yovana chapters is, you know, we get this recapitulation of the, uh, of the sacrifice of Isaac, right? From Abraham, we get the, the recapitulation of, of, uh, Cain and Abel, right? Um, in, in the kin slaying, um, Jacob and Esau thing that uh, I agree. That's really, really cool. That works. That works super well. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I, so I, but I, I think we save that. I think we do the Jacob and Esau thing in episode one of season four. I don't think we do that, uh, here. Um, we'll, we'll save that. We'll save that part. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's funny, you know, I, I've been talking about this very much, but almost every time I allude to season four, almost every time I have alluded to season four throughout the entirety of season three, I'm getting these running comments. There's been this, like, whispering campaign from the script writers uh, in the comments about how we need to expand season four and we're going to need, we're, you know, the, 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 implica- the dark implication that we're never going to be able to get through, that we need two whole seasons for of Bulerian and its realms that we can't possibly accomplish that in one season. Uh, see, we'll see. We'll see. I've been not talking about it because it's not relevant yet. That's a discussion for another day when we're planning out season four. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that this has been a continual running theme. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. No problem. Willing to consider it, but just not right now. Uh, okay, so. Right, so we'll do that. We'll do that in episode. And I brought this up because Marie was just saying, like, okay, we could do that, but uh, we're going to need more episodes in season four. I get it. I get it. Um, oh, good. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's fine. Um, okay. So this means that we, af- the last thing, then we get from the Feanorians potentially, like the last dialogue that we get from them, could be this conversation where they're talking about the oath and how they are bound. To, to maintain their war against uh, against uh, Morgoth no matter what, right? Some of them saying that with enthusiasm, like Caranthir and uh, Kelegorm in particular, I would think, and some saying it with, uh, you know, and one, Maglor, saying it with resignation, and uh, one, uh, Emros, saying it with despair, right? So, yeah, I think I think that, that seems like a good place to leave the Feanorians, actually, in season, at the end of season three. Um. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um. Yeah. What they hear or don't hear about Fingolfin's arrival? Eh, let's worry about that later. Okay. On to the host of Fingolfin. Okay. So Fingolfin wants to find Feanor and Morgoth, and he sensibly prioritizes Morgoth. I do think that there should be some Angrod in particular. We mentioned as the the chief when they were setting off across the Helcaraxa. We made Angrod the chief spokesperson of the. Uh, uh, let's kill Feanor um, camp. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's um, uh, that makes sense, and that when they arrive, therefore, he should also be the voice of the people who are like, okay, Morgoth's a lower priority. Let's go get Feanor. Right? You know, like as soon as they arrive, especially after all the suffering in the Helcaraxa, they are they're. There are are there's a subset of the followers of Fingolfin who are just they are their their number one goal is to get back at Feanor so they want to go find Feanor first so I would think that Fingolfin would have to overrule Engrod in particular uh, and say no we're going we're going straight to Angband we're going uh, against Morgoth um, and they blow their trumpets <clears throat> and the sun rises. Again, the timing... So now, the timing of the rising of the sun. Uh, in the text, as I said, the sun rises as they arrive in Mithrim. I think the sun should rise when they arrive at Angband. Is what kind of makes the most sense, I think, with a visual adaptation. Because what we're wanting to show is the effect on the enemy. I think it would be pretty cool if Fingolfin is driving straight 
towards Angband, anticipating resistance, right? Anticipating... Um, I'm not saying that it rises at the last second, but I'm saying as they're coming in, they should be in view of it. Like, it should be off in the distance. And they should be trying to decide, do we attack now? Do we try to regroup and, and, and recover a little bit more first? And then... Um, and then the sun rises. Yeah, Nick was thinking a similar thing. Uh, uh, Nick says the most dramatic thing would be for Fingolfin's host to be arrayed against everything Morgoth can throw at them, and then the sun rises and scatters Morgoth's forces. I was thinking about something like that, basically, where they they see Angband, right, and they're deciding like, should we attack? And I don't know. Like it looks pretty. You know, the darkness is very strong, right? The shadow is almost impenetrable. How can we? How can we hope to fight against that? And then the sun rises, right, and Fingolfin sounds the trumpets and says. Let's go. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, is Turgon in the uh, let's go kill Feanor camp? Turgon was the spokesperson for... He was the prophetic one, right? He was the one with the foresight saying that it's important that it that it, that they it is important for them to go to Middle Earth, right? So that he like he was just of the it is this is our job, right? We should go because it is important that we do so. Um, that was, of course, before his wife died in the crossing of the Helcaraxa. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to make Turgon just go bloodthirsty, though. Turgon shouldn't be bloodthirsty. He is too, I don't know, judicious a person, I think, to just go bloodthirsty. Besides which, we already have bloodthirsty. Like, Angrod is the voice of bloodthirsty, right? Um, We can have others kind of joining him, but I don't like doing that with Turgon. Here's the reason. The main reason is that when Turgon makes his bad call at the end... I want that to be like the first one, basically. I want that to be seen and felt by the viewers to be out of character for Turgon. Um, that is the fall of Turgon right there when he decides to to reject the counsel of the Lord of Waters. Um, I don't want to see him falling here. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. We, we got to keep him noble. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I think, I think like, like, I think, I think we want, um, we want, we can, you know, that fall of Turgon can be really, really dramatic if we sort of keep alive the viewer's hope that he really is, that that he's the kind of the salvation. Like exactly. I, I, I kind of I think I think you want the like the 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 naive viewer, the person who hasn't read the books or isn't familiar with the story. I think you want them watching this, thinking, "Wow, everything's going to hell," but Turgon, yeah. Turgon will, will like pull it out in the end. He is the hope, absolutely. Um, yeah. Everyone, yeah. including Morgoth, let's remember, everyone, including Morgoth thinks that Turgon is a legitimate threat. Turgon could be the one. 
Turgon. I mean, there need, there there can even be some kind of. I think there should be, because um, there is in the text this almost like not quite messianic, but um, uh, those kinds of prophetic rumors. You know that Turgon, Turgon could take down Melkor. Turgon could be the key to uh, ending this war. Um, and he has to act worthy of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, um, yeah, I mean, this is what that, that, that stuff is there in the text. Those predictions are there in the text, even that kind of messianic flavor. Now, it's about Arendel that the text gets more explicitly messianic, right? But, um, but even with, um, um, even with, uh, even with, with Turgon earlier on, we do get some of those elements, especially going back to the earlier texts. Um, yeah, so so good. Yeah, and, and, and uh, Nick, I think it's a really good construction. He's anti-Feanor, but not pro-Kinslaying. In fact, Nick, he could even make a speech, right? He could even respond to Angrod uh, by saying, you know, I, I have no more love for the Feanorians than you do, Angrod, um, but let's not, let's not become like them. Right. Let's not let it. Let us not recapitulate in ourselves. You know the crimes that they have committed. That will, that will certainly solve nothing. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. Cool. Um. So. So good. They don't know Fanor's dead yet. Right. True. The reforging of Ringo. I love this element, right? I love that um, uh, I love the reforging of Ringle as a symbol at the end of this. That should definitely come near the very end of the season. Absolutely. Um, again, I, 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 wanna, I don't want to do the two camps. I don't want to do the tension between them. Um, but I think that we can do the reforging of Ringo, certainly. Um yeah, yeah. Um, Brianna's suggesting that maybe Turgon could be the one who is prophesied to bring balance to the Force, which I think is a very attractive idea. <laughs> it's like that, yeah. I mean, that's the it's 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 that's that's it kind of how they talk, not in those terms exactly, but just as. You know, uh, just as Anakin Skywalker is viewed as like kind of vaguely, right? This one who is like destined to do great things and bring about a really good end, right? Even though it's all always kind of vague what that end is going to be and in what sense the force is imbalanced and how it's to be brought back into balance and what that even means. Um, nevertheless, it's, yeah, that, 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 with the more concrete goal of the overthrow of Morgoth, um, that, that sense is something that should be the arrival of Turgon. Sh- I mean, this is why the arrival of Turgon at the near Nith Arnoidiad is like a U catastrophe, right? And why it's because it, Fingon's rejoicing in the arrival of Turgon on the field of the Near Nith Arnoidiad is not just because he's like, hey, unexpected re- reinforcements. This is great from a tactical standpoint, right? It's not just that, right? Turgon is there. It's not just that there are 10,000 elves there. Turgon is there, 
right? Uh, Turgon has come and now is going to be, they were hoping that this was going to be, they had already been doing there the day has come thing, right? The night is passing. And then when they say that, and then Turgon shows up, right? Look at that. See, the night is passing. The day has come. Turgon is here. The time of the, the foretold overthrowing of Morgoth is at hand, right? That should totally be the spirit of the beginning of, uh, of, of the near ninth Arnordiad. So we do need to, we do need to, uh, uh, to build that up, right. To, to, to have that sense of, um, Turgon being the one who is going to, and so I, and I, so I think we, we can begin, um, I think we begin sowing the seeds for that here in season three. We begin first with his sort of prophecy of what, you know, like that they need to be here. And if they, um, if they don't, if they come to Middle Earth, right? Then, uh, uh, you know, if they cross the Helcaraxa and come to Middle Earth, then uh, then Morgoth will be overthrown, right? Um, you know that uh, that that kind of thing, right? And he's the one to utter that prophecy originally, and then they come back and and anyway. So yeah, I think that it's all, um, it's all uh, it's all good. Um, okay, um, yeah. Um, okay, so we'll come back to the timing of the forging of Ringo because again, I want to bring that into the whole the larger discussion of uh, how the sequence of events works and how we build to the end of this episode. Um, okay, so let's keep going. We'll 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 come back to Ringo. Um, all right, other key things happening. In the episode, we've got the rising of the sun, of course. Um, Kyrdan's messenger arrives in Menegroth to report on the burned Teleri ships. Yes. Didn't we have the messenger of, of Kyrdan and Celeborn leaving after they spotted the Feanorians? No. We didn't, did we? No. We had Kyrdan sending the messenger after they found the Teleri ships, but before they found... The Noldor. Yeah, that's what we did last time. Okay, right. So... Oh, so that's kind of a downer for Thingol and Melian at the end of the season. So, I have good news and bad news. Right? The good news is, always back! The bad news is, but he's probably dead. We don't really know. All of his ships are burned. It looks bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so what's the gist of that? Where are we leaving this? Uh, by this, I should be more specific. Where are we leaving the Menegroth story? Where are we leaving the Doriath element? Because this is the this is the sign off essentially. Unless we want to include them in our in our montage of images at the end, um, which I think we probably should. Um, but. Where do we leave? Um, where do we leave Thingol and Melian? I was suggesting last time. I think that Melian is going to have some kind of sort of foreboding of what is going to come. She doesn't have foresight or anything, but she, you know, gives a, a sort of a general warning. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree, Marie. I, re- I was remembering that, too, that originally we were going to end the Doriath scene with Thingol and Melian discovering that the Noldor had arrived, right, and not knowing what it 
what that meant um, or what the significance of that was. But they're not going to even learn that, right? They're just going to learn about the burning of the ships. So what conclusions do they draw from that? Where does Melian go with that? What do you think, Dave? How 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 cryptic should she get here? How uh, she could certainly have some kind of general insight, right? General insight into um, the you know the the that, yeah. I don't think she should. Yeah. I don't. I don't think. She, I don't think we want to get like a detailed um, uh, uh, accounting of their deeds up until this point. Um, but, but she should definitely be the wet blanket on any enthusiasm about like, oh, look, more elves. That's that, that can only be good. Help from the West. <laughs> Help from the West. Except it's obviously not going well because their ships are already burned. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's... I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what the delivery should be, but she, she should definitely say, you know, she should be tempering any enthusiasm thing going on. Right. Head. But there wouldn't be too much enthusiasm, would there? Because the only, I mean, the news, in as much as they have news, it's bad news, isn't it? Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. It almost makes me think her, she, Yeah, she, she doesn't afford her much opportunity to be a wet blanket. Right. It almost makes me think she should be giving a word of hope when they're sort of despairing. Yeah, uh, well, what if we have her? Um, what if we have her give sort of the first of many, you know, prophecies about how hope will come out of the arrival of the Noldor or something like that? You know, allusions right. to future events. Right, but of course they don't even know anything but, about the Noldor. But around, well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. I, I'm sort of realizing that we've we've. By the, the course of events as we've unfolded them, we are sharply limiting the information that, that uh, Thingol and Melian have to this point. Um, Celeborn's going to come back in Season 4 telling them about... the He's going to meet with the Noldor, um, and he's going to tell them what's going on around Lake Mithrim. But that's next season. Uh... So, okay, I guess here's here's the way I'm thinking it through. I'm thinking we need two steps, right? First, we need, we need like, what is a logical conclusion to draw from this based on the evidence, right? So they hear an account. Oh, and by the way, I love the idea that it's, uh, that it's Enile who comes with the tidings. Um, for those of you who don't remember, and if I'm remembering correctly, and Marie, you can tell me if I am, that's the guy who takes in who is Tuor's foster father. If you remember when Tuor flees from the Easterlings uh, and he's fostered in the wilderness by one of the Grey Elves, that's the guy, right? Am am I... Yeah, yeah, right. That is the guy. Okay, I thought so. Um, So that's cool. We get to introduce another named character who won't come in and be relevant for, like, another seven seasons. Uh, But that's great. I actually like that. Um, Okay, so... So, yeah, it seems to me that we should have somebody responding to, like, based on what we've heard, this is the logical conclusion. Like, this is the thing that we should conclude is probably happening as a consequence of that. And then she should respond to that with some kind of insight or foresight about, you know, hinting at what actually is happening because the conclusion that they come to is wrong. 
but I can't decide what the original conclusion is going to be. So, I mean, okay, I'm, I'm like, I'm single, right? Here I am, I've, we've just fought off the enemy, and it didn't go totally according to plan, and we had that spider business, which was totally unexpected. But, you know, the girdle is up, and that's kind of good now, so Doriath seems to be safe, so I'm now feeling confident, though sort of besieged. Uh, and the phallus is still destroyed, and that's bad. But anyway, we're safe now, we think. We're pretty sure we're safe now. Uh, and we defeated the orcs, and they've run away, and we chased off the spiders, or at least the missus chased off the spiders, so that's fine. Um, now I'm getting word from Celeborn and Cirdan that there's a bunch of Teleri ships burned on the coast. What conclusion do I come to? Given my frame of mind, right... What conclusion is is he got to come to? Marie, I absolutely agree. I think he's got to fear that Olway is dead, especially if we're recalling the Kyrdan and Olway business, right? And he is expecting that Olway might return. Um, Ships from the West is something that he could be expecting reasonably, especially since Kyrdan and Olway had that thing in season two where they were like, okay... um, you know, let's uh, let's set up the, the 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 ferry system, right? Let's keep lines of communication open between Valinor and Middle Earth. We want to go to Valinor. We want to be in Middle Earth. We feel called to both of these things. Um, let us be both sides of this thing. So he thinks that always probably dead. And as Marielle points out, he's not wrong, right? Except he is wrong. Um, so. Hmm. Yeah, Zach, you're right. Zachary uh, Komen is reminding us that uh, the message of the burned ships should include the fact that there weren't any bodies. Um, well, maybe. Maybe the one, uh, but maybe they don't find that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's so like basically they're, they're not seeing signs of a battle, so they, they can... Uh, they can say, like, we, we... There's, you know, the message can be, you know... Uh, he can ask, Thingol can say, you know, did you find, did you find Olway? You know, were, were, were my people slain there on the beaches? And, and they can be like, no, we didn't, we didn't find any evidence of that. It's just the ships were burned. Um, and he can, I guess he can just be kind of confused, right? Um, But, Again, uh, so let's see. So I, what would be I'm kind of confused of, and not sure what go, is going on. Is not a very like uh, you know that doesn't make for compelling TV. Not as a culmination of the season. No, it's fine yeah. in the middle, right? But yes, and now we end on a note almost, of just kind of bewilderment, and nobody knows what's happening. Like that doesn't seem. Yeah. Do we? So, like, what do we want the final note of this season to be? Is it? Is it hopeful? I think is it mixed? Okay, the, is it ominous? It's mixed. Uh, the okay. final vision is the rising of the sun, right? Right. And I think symbolically, what we want to do with that is two different things. On the one hand, this is a sign of hope, right? And the enemy will be driven away. So we have a kind of the rising of the sun in the one sense foreshadows, though it's a little odd to talk about the rising of the sun foreshadowing things. But anyway, the rising of the f- sun foreshadows. The, the the war of wrath, right? I mean, this is like, you know, <clears throat> the good guys from the West are coming in to Middle-earth and driving, you know, Melkor and his servants in front of them. 
symbolically, temporarily, right? It, it's this is this is the anticipation of that. So, Sun as promissory note of the intervention of the Valar is one note of the end of this season, and so that is certainly hope. You have not been abandoned. We are not abandoning Middle Earth, and Morgoth, you are being served warning that we are we are watching you. But that's the other thing, right? The other thing that the Sun does is is it shows things up, right? We have the clear. Uh, uh, seeing things in a clear light. So here I'm thinking of like Feanor's uh, vision at his death, right? His, his, his uh, uh, knowledge that um, his, his knowledge that their war was not going to be any good, right? That, that they couldn't hope to succeed uh, in their war against Morgoth. That I think is also a note that we need to hit at the end. Yes, there's hope. But it's not like hope that the war of the Noldor against Morgoth is going to go well, right? If anything, there should be a sort of a clarity that it's not going to go well. Um, they don't all necessarily see that, but I think that we—I I do think that we want to have both things. Um, yeah. You know, well, I kind of think I kind of think for for sort of on-screen dramatic purposes, we kind of want to maybe pick one thing that we really want them to take away, or we want we want to craft like the initial reaction, which maybe should be so so, yeah. so either the initial reaction should be negative. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking the original reaction so, is positive, and then we go negative after that. And then we go negative. Yeah. I mean, the, the first instinct, like, I mean, like the immediate reaction to the rising of the sun is that like light drives away the darkness. I mean, that's got that's got to yeah. be the very first thing. <clears throat> and we've got, you know, orcs scattering and trolls turning to stone. So, um, I mean, it's 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 going to be a dramatically good thing initially. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the kind of the negative has to follow or, or rather the I won't say negative, but the sort of confronting of sober reality right 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 um, well i do kind of like i at least within the within the context of of um single i do feel like like melian's appropriate role is wet blanket <laughs> yes well that it is it is a, it is a sort of a frequent role um so I'm kind of inclined to go with a Thingol initially is kind of excited. Well, they're, sure, their ships are on fire, but no one's dead. And <laughs> right. their ship, they, it still they could be a good be. thing. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah they got it. Like, I like the idea of him saying, like, you know, well, they're here. Let's We should send out some search parties and go find our kin because they're here. They might need our help. The sun's up. Things are great. And Melian's sort of, you know, darkly hinting that you're probably not going to find what you're looking for. Right, right. I have, a, I have a more radical suggestion. <clears throat> Let's okay, ditch good. the messenger Great. entirely. Let's just ditch the messenger. Yes, the I, whole, I agree, actually. The point it of the messenger, it too complicated. Or, yeah, the point of the messenger originally was to bear news that the Noldor had arrived and to have, to, to, to have that news reaching Thillion, uh, uh, Thingol and Melian uh, at the end and, and to show them, you know, and, and sort of Melian's forebodings that you know, this might not be quite as good as it looks. Uh, so that, that was the original thought there. That was why we were uh, doing a messenger in the first place. I don't know that we want to uh, 
end the to have the final note of the Thingo and Melian story in this season be bewildered failure to solve a mystery, right? That 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 doesn't seem like a good note to end the season on. Um, so let's ditch it. <laughs> let's forget it. If we can't get them tidings of the Noldor, and I don't think we can, based on what we were. I mean, I, I like the leaving Kierden. You know, we we leave Kierden and Caliborn before they make contact with the. Again, we save that. We save the first contact between uh, the Teleri and the, you know bet- between the Sindar and the Noldor until season four as well. Um, uh, but we. Then, so I think we can come back to Thingo and Melian, but just have them react to the rising of the sun, right? That'll give them, we, we have plenty of excuse for a, for a final Thingo and Melian scene after the sun rises, right? Um, yeah. See, Brianna is having exactly the same problem that I was have that I've been having as I've been thinking about this episode. Brianna just said, I keep imagining the rising of the sun as the very last moment, culminating after a building swell of an orchestra with the final shot being the waking of men. Exactly. So you get the rising of the sun and then we just show without dialogue all of these scenes, right? We show you know, Fingolfin, the 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 armies of uh, of of Morgoth scattering. We show Fingolfin pounding on the doors of Angband. We show, um, uh, we sh- and then and then at the end, Brianna, as you suggest, we show the the awakening of men, right? Um, but it, but it, exactly the problem I keep having, Brianna, is that we've got all these other things that need wrapping up. And right? we finish we finish with a ten minute scene of Thingol and Melian pouring over the, the message. <laughs> the message of the burn shifts, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, yeah, trying to sleuth their way uh, around that around that problem. Um Yeah, uh so yes. Sounds exciting. It does. So I don't think we can do that. And and Brianna, I, in the end I don't think we can do have the sun be the very last thing. We need several things to happen after the sun rises. Like we need a sequence of events after the sun rises. And I think probably, what do, even what do we, dialogue. what do we really, what do we really need to happen after the sunrise? You sure we can't end with like a dramatic, dramatic, like one minute sequence where the sun's rising and we just do a montage of things, of scenes with things happening. I you, love you, it. You, but here's you, my problem. Fingolfin's the problem. Fingolfin is okay. the problem. Um, everybody okay. else, we could just get a reaction shot, right? Reaction shot from Thingo and Melian. Reaction shot from Mithras hanging on the cliff. Reaction shot from Morgoth. Reaction shot from Sauron and the armies and the trolls turning to stone. Uh, reaction shot from the sons of Feanor in their camp saying, what? Uh, what? Um, there's lot, you know, everybody, we'd be fine with, and then the, 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 the reaction shot of men waking up. But the Fingolfin is the problem, Right. Because he, after the sun rises, needs to charge down, beat on the gates of Angband, and then leave and possibly reforge Ringo. Right? And that kind of all needs to happen after. Um, sure, we can't just finish with the sun rising over the army of the of with the, the Fingolfin's army um, out, arrayed out in front of the gates of Angband and him beating on the door and just leave it at that. If we leave it at anything, I would want it to be that, right? And by the way, Fingolfin, except, all right, hang on. We, uh, we can't, we couldn't, I, I can't have Fingolfin beating on the doors of Angband be without dialogue. He needs to call out Morgoth, right? This needs to be, so that when he comes for their final duel after the, the Battle of Sudden Flames, um, which 
according to my schedule, comes at the very end, in the very climactic episode of next season, right of season four. We're going to have, so we end season three and season four with Fingolfin pounding on the gates of Angband and challenging Morgoth to come out. He doesn't come out the first time. He does come out the second time. Um, uh, but I, I, I can't, I'm not trying to stir up the whole that can't all happen in one season story. Again, that's a conversation for another day. My point is that's a, a huge, important, climactic moment, the, the duel between Fingolfin and Morgoth, and I want to set it up with the, the beating on the, on, the, on the gates of Angband. Um, uh, um, uh, I guess here's my other concern about the, the reason why I feel that I feel that Fingolfin's plotline requires a certain amount of movement post-sunrise. Like, it's not... I have a hard time encapsulating it in a single image. Again, if it were one image, it would be that one of him beating on the doors. But what do we convey with that? I mean, if that's the final image we get of Fingolfin, or indeed perhaps any of the Noldor, is him pounding on the gates of Angband, what are we... What message are we leaving our our viewers with? What are we like as they wait for the beginning of next season? What are they? What are, what are we leading them to think? Just that he's besieging it, that he's attacked it, that he's like, <laughs> yeah. What's the outcome? Yeah, of actually, that in some ways, that'll that that'll set up a really anticlimactic first episode of next season, where where we end with him banging on the door. Maybe we do, a, <laughs> yeah. we do a pull, yeah, we do a pull away shot where we show his like you know, huge forces and they're like, Oh, big battle scene next time. And then the start the next episode, he's back at his camp, um, sharpening Ringo. And it's like, wait, what happened? Right. Exactly. Or, or like to, you know, we return right, right to where we left off. There's Fingolfin still pounding on the door. Nobody answers. Nothing happens. (laughs) So we just turn and walk away. Like, I think that we can make that work here. Like, if we did that sequence here, we can show yeah. Morgoth not answering, Morgoth still cowering from the sun, Fingolfin then retreating, because his people are beat up, right? I mean, his pe- he's come straight from the Helcaraxa, for crying out loud, right? I mean, his people are a mess. Um, but there, but it's, and, and I think it's the, and again, this is where I come in with, with the sequence, right? I mean, no matter how gung-ho they are, either to fight Feanor or to fight Morgoth, they they need to regroup right after crossing the Helcaraxa. Um you know we're all frostbitten on the verge of starvation like can we can we can we get a day or something you know right to recoup why don't they why do they go straight to angban answer the sun rises right and they have to, they take the opportunity so you know i i i could even imagine essentially fingolfin and the rest of them saying well okay folks let's um you know some people are saying, like, Angron wants to go find Feanor right away. Others of you want to think we should uh, go attack Morgoth first. Um, let's table this discussion for a little while while we recuperate and stuff. And then the sun rises. And everyone's like, okay, no, now is the moment. L- look, the enemy is scattering. Let's, uh, let's go. We shall take this as a sign, Mariel. Exactly. Uh, we take this as a sign. Um, and... Uh, and and we can and then we charge there, but but it doesn't work, right? You know, they they get there and they they can't 
they can't win. So, Nick, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I think that we can have them retreat now and still have it be dignified and not just seem hideously disappointing. I, I don't think we can do that. If if we make people wait anticipating that there's going to be a great battle and that the gates of Angband are going to be broken by Fingolfin only to have him in the first five minutes of episode one just turn and walk away, that, yeah, I, that, I don't think that is there, is, so. So is there a way we can we can, um, we can kind of we can reduce those those expectations. Um, w- one suggestion would be, um, okay, radical suggestion. Fingolfin doesn't do any of that. He doesn't go to the gates and bang on them. I know you're you're going to reject that out of hand. <laughs> um, <but> okay. <laughs> less less radical suggestion. What if we What if we make it make it crystal clear to the viewers that that this is not an in that he's not going, he's not initiating assault. So maybe, um, um, oh, and this could be a, this could be a uh, uh, foreshadowing of future Fingolfin actions. What if Fingolfin rides alone to the gate? I was just thinking that, yeah. Bangs on the door, maybe plants a sword in the ground in front of the gate and then storms off. So it's like, I'm not here to invade. I'm just here to, 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 to give you like, you know, to, to let Morgoth know we're here. I love – I, I was just thinking that too, right? What if Fingolfin yeah. – so first of all, Fingolfin would have to reforge Ringo earlier, right? He'd have to reforge uh-huh. Ringo yeah. like in, in episode 12 after they arrive like by moonlight or something. Probably. But anyway, um, uh, uh, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever happens. So I'm thinking his people are in their – like the – they're a mess, right? I mean, we've shown the suffering of the of the host of Fingolfin as they cross the Helcaraxa. They're, you know, like, yeah, they're on solid ground now and it's not quite so cold and the moon is up and the sun's about to rise, but they're still frostbitten and half-starved, right? So I think it would be okay for, like, his first concern is to take care of his people and then the sun rises and I think he, he maybe plan A is to go and charge Morgoth to single combat, Right. And he goes and he cha- and Morgoth doesn't answer his his challenge, right? This also makes his challenge to single combat later on sound less completely insane, basically, right? And more of it because I like the idea of, I mean, yes, he is Fey when he goes and he challenges Morgoth later on, but I would love to have Fingolfin's end after the Dagor Bragalach be not um committing suicide by Morgoth, right? Uh, you know, using Morgoth as, as an instrument of suicide, but rather I am going to risk my own life in the last desperate hope. Like I once challenged Morgoth to single combat. I'm going to do it again. And, um, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and this now, whereas before, you know, he, he, he was feeling confident because the sun had just risen and the, the creatures of Morgoth were cowering. Um, and he can be saying, you know, come out and face me in the light, in, you know, in the, in the light of the sun, um, you know, beneath the eyes of the Valar, come and face me here and I will fight you. Um, he now goes in desperation, right? And without real hope that he's going to win, but it's the only chance that he then sees. It becomes the one hope of victory that Fingolfin retains after the Dagor Bragalock, thinking that it's it's the only possible hope. Um, it's a little radical. Um, and of course it runs the risk of, 
Well, I mean, it runs the risk, of course, of making the his his later challenge less unique. But I think if we set it up properly, it could make it even more powerful. Um, I I like this idea a lot. I think I think this this solves the problem. It doesn't it doesn't set the the it doesn't it doesn't give the audience false expectations about a, a giant battle. Yes. It does a wonderful like it really yeah it fits perfectly into kind of the later events and and builds like a nice narrative where he where this isn't like he didn't just lose he, later on he doesn't just go nuts and go challenge Morgoth but that like this is something he intended to do from day one right. and that the first time around Morgoth was. Uh, was too scared to come out maybe because of the sun. Um, and then later on, you know, he like Morgoth finally does come out because you know, it's too shameful not to. Um, and, and I think then now we have a way to kind of like we can, and we can fiddle with the timing of how this is handled at the end to get the, the ending we want. Like we could have, we get hit, we could have him running up to the gate in, in the, in the, 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 the bright of day, or we could have him do it, and have the sun rise while he's like marching, like while he's walking dramatically away from the gate, um, <laughs> with banner planted in the ground in front of the gate, um, or or we could or or he could already be back at his camp sharpening Ringo when the sun rises. Like I, I think I think this gives us a lot more flexibility. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, so. I agree. Now, Zach asks the question, why doesn't Morgoth answer this first challenge? Uh, several reasons for that, which I think work, suggest themselves fairly quickly. One, um, this, the, first of all, remember, he does not answer the second challenge gladly, right? He's, he's, I won't say nervous, but he is not eager to come out and fight Fingolfin even the second time, right? Um, the first time, under the full light of the new sun, with Arya looking, uh, Arian looking down on him, right, and uh, and, he, and and remember, what's he thinking? Morgoth has got to be thinking, this is it, right? This is it. That they're coming. The Valar are coming. Um, he does not want to. It's not that he's necessarily. It's not like he's afraid of Fingolfin necessarily. Though again, he wouldn't face Fingolfin eagerly, uh, and doesn't either time. But. He's got to think, like, if I step out of these gates, like, Tolkas is coming over that hill, right? Any minute now, like, the sun, that's got to be the conclusion he comes to when the sun comes up. Um, so, uh, I think, uh, um, I think that that's enough, really, to say, or to explain why he wouldn't come this, he, that, why he wouldn't come out. And he's got, and, and, and it's got to burn him, Right? I mean, he's got to be losing face in there as as Fingolfin is shouting his defiance and his challenge and Morgoth is not coming. <clears throat> that's That's got to be embarrassing. And that's one of the reasons why he does come the second time. Uh, even though, you know, he could easily just have Fingolfin taken and tortured or whatever when Fingolfin is there all by himself in front of the gates the second time, right? Um, so why does he not do that? Why does he not just ca- faithlessly capture Fingolfin and torture him to death? Uh, reason, because he's still he's still burning from this one, right? He, he feels the need to redeem himself uh, for not fighting Fingolfin the first time. And I think that that works, that that works pretty well. Um, so, 
Nick, I have to disagree with you that uh, this is far less climactic than the book's description. The army coming up, pounding on the gates, and then turning around and walking away, I think is not far more climactic than uh, this challenging to single combat um, uh, and defying Morgoth like this. So I, I just I flatly disagree with you that the book's description there is far more climactic. But the other thing, that the, the, um, the reason, the question, Nick, that you were asking before that, why is it important that we uh, that we don't play out the scene as written just because we want a sunrise montage in the final moments of the episode? Yeah, the question is, how do we end the season, right? How do, and we don't have a culminating thing. We don't. I mean, we have the rising of the sun. That's it. That's the only thing we have at the end of this season is the rising of the sun. And so it therefore seems that if we're going to make the ending of this season powerful... Um, then we need to... It's Buddha! So much much for my being quiet. (laughs) Trish is back. And I can't talk very well because half my mouth is Novocaine, but... Right. um, Anyway. We hear that... We hear that the the herald of Trish. (laughs) Budan way! (laughs) Exactly. Oh, hush. He he was getting pissed because the the cat, Megovanen, was bothering him. That was why he was yelling. Um, But I do have a question I was going to say. So I think think we did this once before. So this is deja vu probably for you guys. Don't we have Mythros on the side of the mountain at the end of this? Yeah, yeah, he's there. He's there, yeah. We we, uh, discussed the mechanics of stapling him to the cliff earlier in the episode, yeah. Right, right. I, I've been reading. Dave's been taking copious notes on Twitter, so I studied up before I, you know. <laughs> but uh, but he got so excited about the Fingolfin going by himself to the gates that he forgot to tweet. So I wasn't. He didn't put any of that on the okay. Twitter, and I was like, oh my god. Um, but oh, yeah, I'm um, posting it right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> I usually. Lag. So I mean, as far as drama is concerned, I mean, maybe it's a visual and auditory drama, not a parrot, but yes. like, you know, Speaking we fade drama. out. Yeah. Right. We fade out on Mythros on the wall and we hear an eagle cry in yeah. the background. No, I, you know I, what I mean? It's like something yeah. like that as opposed to it being like a plot drama. You yeah. know what I mean? No, I, I, I really like this. I mean, to me, this seems like a really compelling way to end both the episode and the season. Right. With this kind of really striking visual because that that the number one effect, right, the, one, the most immediate effect of the rising of the sun is the visual effect, right? The striking visuals of the rising of the sun on all of these things. And so to, to be going around and to be emphasizing the visuals with, with music, with maybe a line or two, but very, very few lines, right? Um, just, just, uh, uh, mostly kind of images and, and all of this stuff. Um, but Nick, in answer to your question, why would he not have Fingolfin captured this time if he's walking up alone? Nobody did, because the sun, nobody dares to come out. Like the trolls are turning into stone. The orcs are terrified. No, no servant of Morgoth is going to dare show his nose outside the gates. The, the creatures like the orcs and trolls and werewolves and stuff, because they, they can't or won't in the sun. Uh, Morgoth himself or Sauron or Gothmog or any of them for the same reason that Morgoth doesn't because they're afraid that Tolkas and, and Oromir are coming over the hill. Um, so, I, yeah. I, yeah. And I personally think, I, I would say, I would say Morgoth doesn't even know who it is until he bangs on the door and shouts that he's, um, you know, Fingolfin, son of Finway, right? Because 
because it's not like he's got it's not like he's got his scouts up on the um, up on the walls looking down. They're cowering from the sun. So all Morgoth knows is the sun's come up. His various servants and servitors or forces are scattering or hiding or turning to stone or whatever. And then he's sitting in his in on his throne waiting for the um, waiting for the Valar to show up. Right? He right. he's like, oh boy, here they come. And then there's banging on the door. And yes. then he's like, "What is that? Oh my yes. god, that's them! They're here! They're here!" And then he finds out, like, "No, it's actually Fingolf." Right, and 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 he still doesn't want to come. And here's the thing: yeah. we could do this very efficiently, right? If the whole force is there, if if Fingolfin's whole army is there, like in the book, again, we are building up the visual anticipation of a battle. Like we were showing the whole army there in front of the gate. Um, we right. would have to actually show them turning around and walking away in order yeah. to make Which, the message clear yeah. that the battle's not happening. And that's that's the real problem. The real problem here is if you have Fingolfin and even a small group go bang on the door, plant a flag, walk away, it looks cool. If yes. you have a whole army show up, bang on the door, turn around, it looks like a retreat. It looks like a retreat. Exactly. <laughs> There's no way uh, it looks good. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas, whereas, yes, I agree. Fingolfin like delivering a challenge, which is not, and then he walks away, like. Essentially, try, he hasn't won, right? But he hasn't lost, right? He, he, he walks away sort of triumphantly, right? But, here, but here's the other thing. Um, the other thing is that we don't even have to show... If it's just him, we don't have to show him walking away. All we have to convey is that Morgoth is not going to accept his challenge, right? We show the, you know, the orcs and trolls are scattered, right? So they're a total non-factor. All we would need is one scene, Fingolfin delivering his challenge, and then one shot of Morgoth in there. Like I'm imagining like Morgoth and, and, and Gothmog and Sauron sitting inside together, kind of looking at each other, right? And like them them seeing if he's going to come out, like, you know, essentially to have this like nonverbal, are you going to go out? Uh, are, are you going to send us out? And like nobody says anything or does anything and they just sit there and it's clear they're not going, right? They're not going to answer the challenge. Even if we don't show him physically turning around and walking away, Fingolfin, um, we can establish the fact that he's delivered this challenge and it's not going to be taken up. So that if, in the beginning of season four, we come back and the first time we see Fingolfin is he's back, you know, in the you know in the camp with his people where he left them. We're not leaving it in suspense. What happened, right? We, we've shown what happened. What happened is he delivered his his challenge and it wasn't taken up. Um, and so, you know, so that's easy enough to. Um, uh, to 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 do after the to 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 sort of show after the fact. Um, I honestly, I'm quite enamored of my mental image of him dramatically walking away. Yes, with like the like having planted like his standard in the ground Ooh, right in the front same of the gate. Yes, the same standard which is later going to be trodden into the mud and the blood on the field of the near Nithernoidiad. Right, yep. should get planted in that same field by Fingolfin in defiance at the be- uh, at the beginning. Love that. Love. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, so how about this? How about this? Since the primary action sequence at the rising of the sun is Fingolfin, right? Like I said, everybody else is static, right? We can get a static reaction from Fingolfin and Melian. We get a course of static reaction from Mithros. Is what's he going to do? We can get a static reaction from the Fanorians in their camp. We can get a static reaction from Círdan and Celeborn, right? As perhaps as the sun rises, the sun rises and they see the Noldor camped in the valley below them, right? They're up on the on the hills, looking up from the south, and they and they, you know, uh, on, on on the mountains, looking down into Hithlum, 
into Mithrim there. Um, so anyway, there's all kinds of static, uh, static reaction shots that we can give. We can show Treebeard. We can show Tom Bombadil. Whoever we want to show, right? We can show having, and of course, and you know, the orcs are panicking, and we're showing the the trolls turning to stone, um, and we can show, you know, the vampires of Thuring Gwethil, you know, uh, uh, flying into into caves. All kinds of things that we can intersperse. But we, but among all those things, we have several scenes that only one thread among all of these sequences among all of these reaction shots to the rising of the sun, we keep returning to one, and in, 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 we're, we're moving action forward only in one place, and that's Fingolfin, right? So the sun rises. Um, maybe Fingolfin goes alone to, 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 to look at Angband, like to look over Angband, right? Um, and the sun rises then. So we see the sun rising as Fingolfin is looking towards the gates, Right, and then we get all the reaction shots, and we cut back to Fingolfin, and he's standing before the gates, and we show Fingolfin pounding on the gates and shouting his challenge. Right, and then we have other reaction shots, and we show the reaction shot of Morgoth uh, and the others looking at each other, you know, saying "I'm not it," right, and responding to Fingolfin, and then we have other action shots, right, and uh, you know, other reaction shots rather, and then we go back to, and then we show Dave your shot of Fingolfin planting the standard uh, and striding away like an action hero, right, um, uh, walking off not into the sunset but into the sunrise, right, uh, uh, and then. We can have some other shot, and then we end. Of course, the final shot of the season is the the awakening of the uh, the 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 awakening of the of the of the men. Um, oh, and you saying that about action hero merchandising bobbleheads, <laughs> bobbleheads, exactly. Lego, yeah. Lego kits. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> yes, Fingolfin at the gates. Lego kit. Absolutely. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, that, 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 I kind of like this idea, um, like like that you just described, in which Brian posted of like, m- you know, maybe maybe he shows up initially just to check things out. Maybe he sees the gates. Maybe he sees um, Melkor has some some forces stationed yeah. outside, has some scouts yes. up on the wall. Um, uh, if we want to throw Nick a bone, maybe we even have Melkor standing up there, right. and they their eyes meet. Then the sun rises, and all of Melkor's forces retreat. And then that's when Finn Golfin gets a little heady and he runs down to the gate and plants his stand, bangs on the door, plants his standard. Yes. I, I'm, I don't have a problem with that. I'm, I'm mostly in the, I don't, I'm, I'm mostly, uh, the part that I'm, um, uh, uh, emotionally invested in now is the awesome action shot ending. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I don't really it. care how it gets there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I think that's good. The, the planting of the standard I think is really good and I think works really, really well. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. Let's see. Maybe so, we can add a breeze from the ocean. Yeah. Hey, why not? Why not? Um, Brianna, we are going to have to have. Uh, wait, do we want the sun to rise in the east or the west? I know that seems like a question one doesn't normally ask, but of course, in this case, it's an issue. Um, if it rises in the West the first time and then later on, like come season four, it's rising in the East like normal. Um, we might need to explain that. And I, I, I was speaking fairly strongly against making astronomical explanations uh, of things last time. So, uh, but 
symbolically, Phil, I kind of agree. Like the sun rising out of the west kind of seems like what we need here, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't know how we can I don't know how we can avoid it for the sake of these scenes. They want we want them to be we want the light to be coming from the west. We want them to be looking towards the le- the west at the at the rising sun thinking that this is uh you know this this is possibly like maybe the light comes from the Valar themselves as they approach, right? I mean it could be that kind of that kind of thing. Um yeah, Zach, I think we just have it rise in the West this once and, 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 we, and we just don't explain it, you know. The Valar have sorted out the rising of the sun and they've started it rising in the East b- between season three and season four and we're just never going to explain that. Um, we can, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually okay with that. But I kind of think we have to have it rise in the West. Um, yeah, Zach says, just leave it an Easter egg for the book fans, right? Yeah, exactly, Zach. We, we, we'll make it rise in the in the West once, and then it'll rise in the East after that, just so as to give real Tolkien diehards an excuse to look really smart to all their friends and lecture them uh, uh, at tedious length about the astronomy of, uh, of Middle-earth. That makes uh, good sense, actually. Um, yeah, good. Good, okay. I like it. I like it. Um, okay. Good. So that happened kind of unexpectedly on this. I'm looking back at the slide and I'm like, wait, why did I have this slide up? We kind of got distracted, but I think we solved the end of the, the end of the episode issue. I, I, I think that that really works. Again, the only trick is we need it. We do need to make sure that we reforge Ringel sooner. Right? Because he should have Ringo. I guess it doesn't really matter if he has Ringo. Or not. Yeah, I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. Maybe we can skip it. Hey, I know. Yeah, Let's just put that in season four because we barely have anything to do in season four anyway. So, like, we need to fill some That's true. dead space in season four. So. We're, we're worried we're not going to be able to even fill out a whole season. Yeah, that's my concern. So we'll just push that forward. Uh, that'll be good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Hiding of Valinor. Now... The hiding of Valinor. When do we time that? We wanted the actual hiding, so the decision to hide Valinor, we, 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 were, we were talking about that. We had the, the Valar discussing this issue back in the Making of the Sun and Moon episode, right? Um, so that's fine. We know it's going to happen, but we were going to wait to actually have it occur uh, to have that be one of the final notes of, of season three here, the, the hiding of Valinor. Um, uh, but when do we want it to happen in the sequence? We could have it... Hmm. We could do it in the final montage... We could include the images of the mountains of the Polori rising and, uh, you know, the, the, the arising in the sea of the, the, the Magic Isles, right? Um, we could have that happen as part of the montage. Yeah, yeah, that's what Nick was just voting for, too. Yeah, I think the less dialogue, the better, frankly, in the, in the, in the hiding of Valinor. Um... We might 
we might want to get therefore a couple reaction shots from the Valar, right? As they're looking to remind, you know, so that when we show the mountains rising, we need to make sure we have very plain visual cues like, hey, don't forget, this is happening in Valinor. This is not happening some random place in Middle-earth. Don't get confused. Um, you know, we need to return to a shot of maybe uh, Varda and Manway looking out from Teniquitil, and then we sort of like pan out from there and show the mountains, you know, uh, show show Aule raising the mountains, right? Um, we can have Ase. Uh, uh, you know, calling up the islands from the sea. Uh, not Olmo, because he's not really cool with this plan, right? But Ase will go along with it. Um, yeah, Nick, I think we need to show the sun rising behind Teniquitil, right? So, we, you know, at sunrise, we need a shot of of, of Varda and uh, uh, and um, and Manway there. Um Actually, I can imagine a really awesome visual, right? Where we're looking at them and Varda is glowing, right? You know, Varda is shining with light and then she shines brighter and brighter and then the sun rises. So like the light from Varda and the light of the sun as like the rim of the sun rises up above the horizon for the first time up up behind the mountain kind of combine and, 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 you know, make this overwhelming light. And that's the first of the sunrise scenes, right? So that we're recalling that this is in fact from the Valar. Um, yeah, 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 Nick, exactly. Nick says we could have Melkor standing on Thangarodrim and Manway can see him from there, right? So we could actually start this with like a standoff. Remember, Morgoth is all triumphant, right? Morgoth has just finished, essentially, right? Just finished his gloating speech uh, to over the semi-conscious body of Mithros, right? He's standing there on that ledge looking out into the west, towards the west, Right. Uh, saying about how he's won and 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 how, you know, he's awesome and he's the master of doom and everything. And then the sun rises. Right. Then he so then we, we cut from him looking out to the west to Manway and Varda standing on Teniquitil, looking out eastwards towards him. And then the sun rises behind him. Yeah, that works really, really well. Love that. Love that. Um, and Brian, absolutely. We can get a reaction uh, shot of Finarfin and the other returned Noldor. Uh, looking at the Pelori and the rising sun and turning their back on Middle-earth. Love that, Brian. Great idea. Great idea. I mean, I am okay for the rising of the sun sequence to take, like, five minutes. Like, it can take a while. Um, and I think it, it could be really, really striking to have all these different visual scenes and, and, the, and the sun breaking over them and the response of people, even, even a word or two. It's okay, I think, to have a little bit of die. It doesn't have to all be silent. Um, we could break it up with, uh, but not much, not, not conversation, right? Just like a single line from a single character or whatever. Um, but uh, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, this is, this is good. I'm glad we have found a way to make the rising of the sun into a, a suitably uh, dramatic moment here at the end of the season and to be also a thing which is in that way going to kind of tie everything together, right? Because we'll have the Valar, we'll have the the, the Valinor stuff, we'll have, um, you know, all the different Noldor factions, we'll have Thingo and Melian. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, We'll have Cirdan and Celeborn looking down and, you know, Celeborn being all like, you know, 
looking over the camp where his wife is, his future wife, and yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I think that that's. I think that works really well. Okay, let me go back to my slides then, because there are other things we probably have not talked about uh, now that we've uh, now that we've worked this all out. Actually, let me finish this slide. Cyrus and the guest elves welcome to Doriath. Yeah, I don't think we need a scene for that. We could show them there. Um, I think we don't need much action at all in Doriath, especially if we're not going to have a messenger come back, which I'm now I'm now fairly firmly anti-messenger. Um, I kind of I kind of like the idea of cutting that out entirely, so that all we get from Kierden or not from Kierden, all we get from Thingol and Million is their reaction to the sunrise, right? So we can have Cyros there. Right, so that we're reminded of Cyrus's presence. So Cyrus can be kind of standing there behind, you know, with Mablung and Beleg behind uh, behind Kierden, right? Let's have like a a little a little uh, uh, Doriath tableau, right, with Thingol and Melian and Luthien and Diron tastefully arranged, and then like Mablung and Beleg and Cyrus, right? They can all be there. Um, yeah, yeah, that could be good. Um. And good. Okay, so Bulldog and the remnants of his army return to Angband. Oh, man. What if Bulldog and the rest of his army are returning to Angband right when the sun rises? So, like, they go, they're, they're like, coming up, and then they, they end up getting scattered and go running in through the gates or whatever. Um, I think actually having Bulldog and his army to show them being scattered by the sun, just show them running for cover when the sun rises would be kind of cool because it's a good reminder that Bulldog exists, right? His last battle was, uh, was several episodes ago now. Um, and he's our, he's like the representative orc, right? He's the, he's the, he's the, he's the, he's the spokesperson for the orcs. Uh, so to show his reaction to the sun would be a really good way to, to sort of encapsulate the, the orcish reaction to the sun in general. Um, Tevildo's cats. I don't know that we need Tevildo in this episode. I think we could do without the cats or the werewolves. We want orcs and we definitely want trolls. Um, but I don't know that we necessarily need Tevildo or Drugluin or maybe Thorin Grethel. Again, I just kind of like the visual image of, you know, the bats, uh, the giant bats flying, shrieking for cover. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, we could work in a scene with Gothmog and Sauron in more in 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 Angband, right? Um, Sauron has done pretty well for himself, right? I mean, okay, like the whole Girdle of Melian thing was kind of I uh, didn't pan out in the end exactly as he'd planned. Um, so I mean, his armies have been kind of defeated in the south, but he has much more to show for his work than. Uh, than Gothmog does, right? So I guess at the end of the day, their competition is like, who failed less? Uh, and Sauron is totally, <laughs> he totally failed less than Gothmog did. Um, so I guess that's, well, I guess, but then Gothmog can say that they killed Feanor, so I guess, I guess maybe it's a tie. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if we want to include an explicit scene with them or not. I guess I would kind of incline against not, but you know what I'm having a hard time with now, Dave? Uh, oh, and Trish, too, because I keep forgetting Trish is here now. Um, oh, now what? Now that yeah, we because Putin's not making noise anymore. Fine. <laughs> right. Forget about me. <laughs> now, that we've, now that we've worked in all of this awesome stuff into that final sequence, now I'm like, 
So wait, so what happens in the rest of the episode? <laughs> if we do that in the last five minutes, what do we do in the first 45, right? Uh, well, part of this, I mean... Uh, the writers will figure that out. I think we're already there, but I mean, you know, my thought, I mean, we're going to pretty much end on kind of almost like a hopeless note. Well, no, but we get, it's hopeful too, right? It, it goes both ways. Like the, the, the remember that, like we get that Fingolfin triumphant, right? And Morgoth yeah, not daring to stand up that's to true. him. So it looks like we I mean, hope for the good guys. There's definitely hope, but there's also, you know, it's a little grim, uh, no question. Um, well, it seems like this episode would be a lot of like battle action and and conversation about battle action. I think mostly conversation um, though cuz we so we've got Mythros, we got Mythros and right. Mythros's interrogation and then Mythros right. is stapling to the cliff. We got that happening. We've got Okay. We've right. got the Feanorians, right? We need the Feanorians to have their conversation. Right. We need we we had oh, uh, Trish, did you hear about the uh Sauron uh casting the role of the mouth of Sauron? Right, he comes up as the mouth of Melkor, uh, uh, showing oh showing no, tokens awesome. of how Mithros has been captive and 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 giving conditions uh, for the release of the captive. Right, this is one so of this my is favorite things. We, this is how we figure out that he got the idea to have a mouth of Sauron. Exactly. Yeah. So he's he, he, yeah, he's recapitulating like that. that with Frodo later on. It's awesome. Anyway, so so we've got that, and then the Feanorians deciding that they're not going to do that. Right, and talking about the curse of Feanor and how uh, how they're kind of doomed and feeling different ways about that. Uh, so again, we do. You have all that stuff to do earlier in the episode. I think you've got a lot there. I mean, you know, yeah. and plus, I you also have the other side. I mean, you could be showing some interactions going on, you know, in the on the Angband side of life. Yeah, um, we could show some of the some of what's going on with the bad guys. We could even it would be interesting maybe to maybe to suggest that they're about to launch an offensive. Right, that like they're they're like okay, let's just get together and let's combine all of our forces and let's just let's just smash them. They're all here, right? Let's just smash them where they're standing, uh, and then the sun rises, right, and scatters them. And, right, and they, yeah. So maybe we could get some Angband discussion in there. Um, do we need a final Kirden scene? We left Kirden and Celeborn last time. Uh, and I didn't want him to make contact, and I still don't want him to make contact. Do we need to? I think we just include them in a reaction shot to the sun rising. I don't think we need any action from them or dialogue from them this episode necessarily. No, probably not. Still seeing the elves. Still not making contact yet. We'll sort that out next season. Good, good. Okay, let's get A.B. I don't think... I mean, I mean, unless you think there would be some reason why people wouldn't remember him at the beginning of the next season, but I... Yeah. I no, I would just show him visually uh, there at the end. It'll be fine. Yeah, there you go. And we got to do a at the beginning. That's, That's right. a. We can't figure anything else out. We'll just do a montage of people looking at the sun. Exactly. Can't go wrong with a montage of people looking at the sun. Who doesn't love a good montage of people looking at the sun? And they can. They can have that same facial expression that Legolas had after Gandalf went into the chasm in Moria. Remember no. that look on his? No. No, we cannot do that at all. Yeah. 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 Should we show? You know, like one of them figuring out that you should not stare directly at the sun. <laughs> I was thinking, we, if, yeah, we, I was if, thinking if we have that. a really long montage of people staring at the sun, we do need to have a public service uh, uh, warning, don't we? No, yeah, yeah, some kind of, yes. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Only elves can do this. Only elves can, you know, elves could probably do it. Men probably couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Okay, so yeah, so the final image, and we, we've, we've just resolved that. We're pretty good. Yeah, the awakening of the second children, we definitely need to have that as the last image. Uh, Philip is, uh, you know, talking about, you know, saying this is a really crucial image, and I agree. Um, we do want to, uh, we do want to make that, we, we do want to make that really clear, uh, that they're awakening here, and I agree it can be kind of confusing when men just show up out of nowhere, right, uh, if we don't, if we don't show this, so, yep. I totally agree. We should do that. Reforging of Ringo. Like I said, I can kind of take it or leave it. I guess I'll leave that. I'll see what the script people think. If you guys think it can be worked in earlier on, either at the early part of this episode, I'd be fine with that. You know, if we wanted to, if we wanted to do a, cause we, we do. Oh yeah. That's the other scene that we need earlier in this episode, right? Is the scene, the discussion among the, the followers of Fingolfin about what they're going to do. And Angrod saying, let's go find, let's go hunt Fanor down and kill him. And Turgon, doing his thing, right, and, 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 uh, and, 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 you know, uh, foreseeing something, and, um, yeah, so I, it, so I, I will leave the reforging of Ringle to your discretion if you, if you guys think we just want to, uh, shove it into season four, that would be totally fine. Yeah. Uh, kick the can, kick the can. Kick the can, yeah, I think we can, um, well, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be plenty of room in season four for everything that we need. Um, and right, and the other things we're including, Mytheros, Mytheros, uh hanging on the cliff will be, um, uh, will definitely be there in the in the sun scenes, um, and then the final scene is is yeah, men awakening. So men awakening. Let's talk about that very briefly. What do we want that to look like? Where are they? What are they doing? What do they look like? How are they dressed? Are they dressed? Do we have a bunch of naked folks waking up? How many folks do we have waking up? Do we just show, I mean, it's easy enough to say the awakening of the second children, but we can't just say that, right? We got to figure out what we're showing. Well, one thing for sure, no fig leaves, please. No fig leaves. Yeah. Tastefully positioned bushes (laughs) and low hanging (laughs) boughs. The kind of thing that television shows do when they're like showing nudists in a nudist camp, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um... Yeah, Tony, that's exactly the question. The question is how Garden of Eden do we want to get with it, right? Because, I mean, there are serious Garden of Eden, Eden undertones, right? Especially in the Awakening of the Men stuff that uh, Tolkien wrote around the, you know, with like the Athrobeth stuff uh, in Morgoth's Ring. So, uh, yeah. Um, um, now, it's not Eden. Right. I mean, it's not Eden in the sense of I don't think they're awakening in like, a you know, a, a, a land without suffering or, you know, it's like they're, they're not in paradise when they wake. Um, I mean, it can be a, a real nice place. <laughs> right. It's OK for them to be in a good spot uh, and for everything to look lush and beautiful and wonderful. Um Here's the trick, Tony. The, the, the trick with the awakening of the elves, or rather with paralleling the awakening of the humans with the awakening of the elves, is that the elves are already established when they get discovered, right? If I remember correctly, we didn't show the elves waking up. We showed the no, elves we, being discovered it, it, uh, right. by Orame an indeterminate period of time after they had woken up. So that's easier. 
right? Because they've already built the culture. They've already made, they've already, you know, they've already like invented weaving by the time that they're right. discovered. They're so clothes. They're, they're right. clothes and have built, <laughs> have built homes and stuff. So, you know, Quivianen is, yeah. you know, we, we had, it, it was uh, fairly primitive cultures, but still. Um, is yeah. it necessary to show men waking up? Is there a reason why we can't just do a shot of a village of men? Well, that's the problem is that the waking of like this is a moment. They wake up with the sun. Don't they wake they? up with the sun. Yeah, this is a moment. Like it's the only guide that we have. We do have a guide. Remember, okay, and this is asking a lot. Um, remember Gil Fannin's tale in the Book of Lost Tales, Part One, the very first version of the awakening of humans that Tolkien ever wrote in. Uh, an unfinished and sketchy tale, even by Book of Lost Tales standards. He never finished writing this, and he and it's it's all choppy and everything. But um, the way that he conceived this originally, in that that very first time, there were a large number of humans, and they were asleep. Like they were like they were there. It's not like they were created. Like they're just they're they're literally asleep. And when the sun awakes, they when the sun comes, they, they just, they literally wake up from sleep. And of course, in the original story in Gilfanon's tale, one of the elves finds them, like finds the valley where the men are still sleeping and wakes up a couple of them. And of course, cause it's Tolkien, right? He teaches them language. And so we get this whole like philological uh, sidebar on like the language that he teaches them and how the language of the rest of the men when they awake is derived from that and related to it and everything. Um, cause you know, like you do when you're talking, but, um, uh, yeah, so we could do it like that. We, so that is, we don't have to, we, it, it doesn't have to be Adam and Eve, right? We don't have to have a, a couple. It can be a, 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 a group of people asleep and waking up. That is how Tolkien described it in the one time he physically described that scene. Um, I think they'd have to be naked sleeping. Um, and I agree a couple people, uh, both Marielle and Tony are saying this. We, we do have a thorny issue of, uh, race. What do they look like? Are they, I mean, a bunch of white folks waking up. Um, do we have different, like people with different skin colors waking up? Um, if there's a bunch of them, I wouldn't have any problem with that actually. You know, we have like a mixtures of a mixture of different peoples. They're going to sort themselves out into different peoples and clans fairly quickly, right? Um, uh, I wouldn't have a hard time. I, I would not object to having a a group an an uncertain number of people rising from sleep or sitting up out of sleep, right? blinking in the new sunlight uh, and to have them, you know, to have people of, of, you know, various racial appearance. That would seem fine. Um, Yeah, Tony, I think we want to avoid any snakes in the shot at all. I agree. Yeah, no snakes. Uh, We do want to, you're right, we do want to have diversity. We don't want this to be all like any one single morphology or color of people, right? It kind of seems like it has to be that way. Um, 
because we're not going to have time. I mean, see, here's where we get back to we don't want to be answering hardcore scientific questions because Tolkien's mythology is not built on the answers to hardcore scientific questions. Right. right? Um, right. So, I mean, like one could say, well, the progenitors of the human race uh, all resembled one another, but then over time, and as they distributed themselves geographically, you know, uh, uh, through an evolutionary process, they came to look dissimilar from one another. That, that, that's not possible. There's no time for that. Right. Um, you know, we need to have the different groups of people looking different. You know, we need to have essentially different uh, sort of ethnic stocks of humanity in far too short a time for that to have happened by a natural evolutionary process. Um, yeah. So, no, I think a, a multiracial group of humans at Hildorian. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of the way we have to go. Um because from there, the whole point is that from there, they're going to spread out, right, in various different directions. Um, but there's going to be a the biggest single chunk of them, which is going to head west towards the light, right? Um, ooh, sorry. Bank this idea. I had an idea. I, just, I had a, This is a brilliant idea. It's for season four, but it's a brilliant idea. So the, the explanation about the sunrise. So we've got the sun rising in the west one, and then the, it's rising in the east later on. We have a human myth about that, right? The humans can tell a myth, a mythical story about this, that the sun rises in the west, right? So when they first awoke, they're looking off to the light in the west, right? But then the sun reverses its course, and they take this as a sign that they're supposed to follow the sun to the west, right? The sun is now leading them towards the source of the light. The sun first arose in the west, and now it's leading them into the west. So they interpret this mythically, right, uh, to explain why they should go into the west to seek the light, right? Oh, Very good. Boom! Yeah, we got it. Yep, no yep. need for astronomy, thank you very much, when we have myths. So that works very well. Yeah, I like it. Um, <laughs> okay. Excellent. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's... Uh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, Nick, that'll fit into season four, just like everything else will fit into season four. It's gonna be awesome. Um, okay. Um, uh Season four, our our only season of Valerian and its realms. Yeah, I mean, it's, it would be fine. It'll be fine. Um, um, yeah. One thought about the men waking up. Uh, tell me if you think this would be hokey. What if we did it kind of like, like from a first person point of view? So 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 um, so we have. Uh, bear with me. Uh, okay. We have like the dramatic. We have sort of the dramatic montage of yeah. established characters reacting to the sun with music. And then there's kind of a fade to black and the music goes out. And then we get like eyeballs opening. So like, you know, the screen comes right. back on. And we get like a first person experience of sitting up and then standing up and looking around and seeing the other men. That's interesting. With no music, right? So we have this, like, we've had this no swelling music, yeah. music through the montage, and then it cuts, yeah. and all we're getting is, like, the sound, like, the, the gentle tweeting of birds and the rustle of bushes and stuff in the background as we're getting that. Yep. That, yeah. The first yeah, impressions you want this of the to be, new world. I think, yeah, I think it would give you sort of, like, the um, the experience of, 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 well, first of all, I think you want, we want this, like, there's no like quite frankly if we're imagining that the audience consists largely of people who haven't been reading the 
Silmarillion their entire lives. There's no point in trying to make the waking up of men dramatic because people aren't going to get it. <laughs> because right. people, if you don't know what's to come, you don't understand why you should care about this. So I think it's more interesting if you make it mysterious. Right. Like, oh, what if, whoa, what's going on? Like, make it and make it feel like sort of an unexpected scene. The scene, you know, things, we have the dramatic montage, season finale, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we're done. Go to black. And then we get this surprise like, oh, whoa, right. what's going on? Men are waking yeah. up. Um, and, and it's funny, Dave, I, I thought the sentence that you were starting to say earlier, you're saying, you know, if we assume that the audience is composed mostly of what I thought you were going to say, how I thought you were going to finish that sentence was if our audience is composed mostly of human beings, um, then uh, <laughs> that too, be, be, you know, because uh, this is like this is by having the having showing that from the first person, we're conveying the message in kind of a subtle way that this is us. Right. This is us awakening. This is humanity. We, as the human audience, the modern human audience watching these stories to this point, we've we've Mm -hmm. just been the spectators of this, these historical events. Right. This is us coming on uh, uh, coming on the scene for the first time. Um, Yeah. So honestly, I'm not like when I think about sort of alternatives, I, I honestly not sure how else to do it. That doesn't seem weird. Like, you know, it's like kind of camera angle pointed down at some people and they just kind of appear on screen or the way I was originally picturing it is close up of a sleeping person's face. And then we see them like, or like the person blinking in the new sunlight and kind of looking around. Um, no, yeah. As you say, not like a big shot of like all of the tactfully covered naked people, uh, from a, like a helicopter shot, but rather just like, a, a, a so we have, we choose one person, uh, I would, yeah, that works too. I was picturing a a, a a woman, a female face, and then we show her blinking in the sunlight and looking around, and then we kind of pan outwards and we see other people sitting up and stuff. Right. Um, so, okay, yeah, that, that, that would work too. If people don't like the first person thing, because as Brianna points out, it feels a little bit like a video game. Maybe um, I think this could work too, especially if you kind of started like. Like, let's say, uh, I'm not quite sure how to do it, but like something to where you can't see this person right away, mm-hmm. but maybe mm-hmm. you kind of hear br- sleep-like breathing, right. and then like the sun, and then as the, and then the sun arises, maybe the sun crests, crests a, a hill or a mountain, and it's, you know, slowly their face gets lit, right. and then they kind of like... Probably they don't jerk awake, but maybe they yawn and yeah. Like, no, open I think it would eyes. be it would be a a, a graceful, a slow, graceful awakening, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, blinking in the new light, right? You know, to show like the the adjustment to the light, but looking around and smiling and seeing, yeah. You know, the beauty of the world around them, and then we cut. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I kind of like the first person idea. I think that's cool. I mean, we we have to see. That would be one of those things, like we've said before, and indeed, even Brianna, as you have chided us before, like let's uh, let's give the the you know the videographers a, ch- a shot at this, right? If they can do this in a non hokey yeah. way, cool. If not, then we'll do it in a more conventional way. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. I think that the main thing that the main thing that I'm sort of proposing here that I'm I'm interested in is the idea that that we don't try to. So we don't try to make the final, mo- the dramatic montage swell into the awakening of yes. men, but rather yes. we let it, we let it die down, 
and then um, and then the men and then we do like a very subtle no music or anything scene of a person waking up and looking around, and so 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 that it feels a lot like a um, so it feels like you know it doesn't feel it feels definitely like this you know an interesting mystery and the start of something as opposed to like a dramatic moment. Right. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then yeah. you know the the production people you've. Breaking up again there, Dave. Oh, I said production people, you figure it out. Exactly. Yeah, you guys figure it out. Exactly. No, I like that. That's good. Okay, excellent. I think uh, I think we're I think we're in good shape there, and we're yeah, almost out of time. So uh, let me just then end by saying: so for next time, remember we're going to do script outlines next time, uh, as many as we can get through, which I suspect is going to be somewhere between week, right? four and six. Yeah. So next week we are going to meet next week. So this week we had to push forward because I couldn't meet last week. Um, so because uh, I was in Boston last week. So this week. Uh, is this is last week's session now? So we're going to go back to our original schedule for Friday the twentieth. Will be our next session where we'll be talking about the script outlines. Um, and I, as I walked you through on the uh, on the the forums before forums.signumuniversity.org to some film project script season three season three script outlines. You can see the there are the links there for the first like six I think. Um, uh, of the script outlines, and I cannot imagine that we will get past six uh, next time. Um, uh, so, but definitely review this the script outlines for episodes one through four. That's what we're going to be discussing next time. Maybe we'll get further than that, but definitely at least one through four. Um, so that's the uh, that's that's the plan. As I recall, we got through like three or four per episode last year when we did this. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. All right. Very good. So that's uh, that's that's our instructions for next time. Thanks for joining us. I feel really happy with where we got with this. I was not sure at the beginning of the episode. You know, I have to admit, I was a little skeptical coming in. I'm like, I don't know how we're going to pull this off. This the, the ending of this uh, season seems a little bit seems lame. The more I look at it, the lamer it seems. Uh, but I, I think uh, I think we've we've uh, we've done a good job in uh, in figuring this oh, out. Oh, ye of little faith. Exactly. No, I never doubted that we'd sort it out eventually. Uh, very good. Okay, thanks everybody for joining us, and we will see you guys again next week. And say in the meantime, thank you for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>